This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com slash laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan. Let's see, the end. Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. You're getting up there in age. Oh, that's not nice. Because I was going to say the fear. Here's the thing is I had a few options. Yeah. I was looking through my list. It's like the fear... I think he's going to get offended by that because that's not very nice either. The Fury that was suggest he's cool. We'll get into him, but he's, yeah. he's, he's crazy. Yeah, he's a little crazy. The Sorrows, he's dead. That's so there weren't that many options for you. Could have called yeah, it Shagahot or something like that. But you did you know, what that's you a could. Machine. Yeah, so I just, you know, just pulling here from, from what I have. But uh, Dave, it's good to see you. It's Knockback. It's our retro and nostalgia podcast we do each uh, and every week. How are you doing today? Good. I would have went with very naked snake no oh, yeah very naked snake yeah, my old a... adult movie uh call sign uh aka <sighs> you know which is you know aka little snake <laughs> very little snake <laughs> little, little snake, snake little snake come in they could do a whole preschool series with metal gear solid right and dude imagine dude imagine that how that how funny that would be, be if amazing. they if they tried to do that but it had like the same ridiculous themes like world government like all this like really onerous they could still do all the political intrigue but just set it in like a nursery school setting dude it'll be so funny oh that's such a great idea playground politics and all that kind of stuff would be amazing somebody yeah yeah you would have like a series of villains that are like yeah that i think we may have something here i we we definitely do and konami they're shopping my friend as everyone knows right now konami's shopping for ideas so maybe we uh we go pitch it to them I'm sure hey. they'd be thrilled having a Metal Gear game made in the West again. The last time they allowed that, they uh, they came up with the Metal Gear Solid remake on GameCube, which I actually really like, but it's not a very well liked game. No, I, I don't know anything way. about that actually. That's the you know uh, Silicon Knights, Bobby, Di- what's his name, Bobby Dyack or whatever, Dennis Dyack, Dennis okay. Dyack. That was his studio up in Canada. They remade Metal Gear Solid on GameCube, and it's actually the original one, and it's actually really good, I think. But I've I've found in my discussions about it that people don't really like it very much. Interesting. And yeah, so just uh, so there are different ways to to play with this, and of course, we're talking today about Metal Gear Solid Three, which is ironic because that game is in the news as of the time we're recording this. Of course, knockback our our retro and nostalgia podcast is evergreen, but as of the time we're talking about this, really reliable sources are talking about how Metal Gear Solid Three is being remade, and ironically, it's being made by a team called Virtuous, which people might know as a port studio and that's kind of ironic and i didn't realize the irony in that until that's i played pretty the game. funny so that's who, very who, weird so who knows 
if uh, that's going to happen or not, but it's, it's a timely game. But before we get into it, because there's so much to say oh my God. Uh, about MGS3, 2004's MGS3, uh, I don't know. It was voted on by the this? audience. Yes. We will. It was voted on by the audience. I should note, we are supported on Patreon, patreon.com slash Media. Get every episode of the show early and ad-free. Submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. Even submit your own topic ideas. Vote on others' topic ideas. This is one of those topics, so... Come join us over there. Also, we have a vibrant Discord. I think we have like four thousand people in there now, just hanging out. What? I'm in there. I in, I'm in there just posting memes. <laughs> but you, there's a whole memes channel. But people are having serious sports conversations and politics, and try to kind of stay out of that too. And all Sons that. So come, come over and and hang out. But Dave, let's stretch our legs a little bit. How's yeah. uh, how's life in Pennsylvania? And and what's what's on your mind right now? Thank you, my friend. Everything is going pretty good. I have here's what's on my mind today because mm-hmm. later on I have to head out. And I have to start my actual physical Christmas shopping. Oof. And this has been sort of a thing that's been at play for a few years now. But I think about it every year. First of all, I'm starting a few weeks late. I like to get started before Thanksgiving usually and just kind of slowly build. It's, a little, it's getting a little easier when the kids were younger. You parents out there will, will be able to speak to this. Maybe even aunts and uncles too. Grandparents, whatever. Kids could change their 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 picks their santa lists up until like very the very late stages of the game right so i used to be afraid in a way to start early because i didn't know how that christmas list was going to ebb and flow you know Mm. i didn't know how things were going to change maybe all of a sudden kid a doesn't want item e on the list and then i have to go through all this kind of stuff but it's getting a little easier now they're older they they tend to tend to stick to their guns as far as what they want but kyle i enjoy going out into the actual physical retail space at night when it's a little more quiet, whatever, you know what I mean? Kind of time it the right way and try to find things in the wild. I, I just think there's like the thrill of the hunt that way. You know what I mean? Like how cool would it be, for instance, to walk into like a Target, right? And find a PlayStation 5 this evening. You know, it's not going to happen. But here's the thing with that. I think... People naturally want, I guess it's a social thing or it's just a hunter-gatherer thing. Like there's something, the convenience, right, of like buying stuff online, especially like not covering 90% of the kids' Christmas list through Amazon and eBay and the various retail outlets online. There's a great convenience to that. And I don't necessarily frown on that at all. I'm going to do a lot of that. Helene's already well into that with the kids. But... There's something cool about just going out and finding stuff in the wild, maybe running into a, a thing that wasn't even on your mind that you're like, oh, that's a good idea for a stocking stuff or that sort of dynamic. But here's the problem, which you may already realize because you, you tend to get out to the pops. The, the, you don't like to go out generally, but you tend to pop into a Target, a Walmart now. And yeah, then, I go to Target. That's right? like usually where I go when I leave the house. Target, Target Walmart. Specifically. Yeah, some, yeah. Yeah, ta- yeah, Target. I love Target. That's my little, that's my cat, my, that's my secret. And you guys have a decent target down there. Or at least the yeah. one that's near, yeah, near near you guys. Yeah, on Hull Street. It's great. But they tend to be wiped out at any given time, it seems to me, at any given time of the day, any given day of the week. They tend to be, the, the shelves tend to be wiped, you know, just like stripped bare when I go in. Can't find shit. You know, not even just like this new Pokemon card resurgence where you can't find those. Thank you, adult collectors. And, you know, PlayStation 5 and all that kind of stuff, but just anything, even household items. You know what I mean? It's like 
It's hard. Walmart's a little better with it, although I, I prefer came, uh, Target over, or, over Walmart. But that's the thing. Like, it gets the idea of how are these box stores, these physical retail chains, now they have online entities too, but so you go to Target.com and shop, but how are they going to compete with the Amazons of the world when you go into the store and they're getting a reputation for not having anything ever? So, of course, what you do in your frustration, you get home, you go online, log on, go to the website, and you start buying shit on Amazon, right? Yep, of course, of course. So, this is the, this is the way the world now. So, this is all, yep. these gears are all churning. This is all in my mind because my Christmas, my Christmas shopping is going to start in earnest this evening. So, it's just, you know what I mean? And I already know what I'm in store for. I already know, you know? But I'm going to stubbornly head out and just hope for the best anyway, you know what I mean? Because just to do something, get out of the house, maybe Lilia comes with me, it's a little father-daughter time, whatever. Can't do that in front of the computer. So that's been on my mind a lot. Like I would like to see the targets of the world and the other big box stores. Really, I know overhead is, you know, you're in that business. I don't know much about that business, but I'm assuming the overhead, the retail space, paying out for merchandise as, you know, compared to turning that merchandise around and profiting and all that kind of stuff. It's a... It's a tightrope walk, right? But I would like to see them sort of double down on just being competitive. You know what I mean? So people actually do pop into the stores. Or are they just relying on the fact of like, people still go bowling, people still go to the movie theaters, people still pop into a Starbucks. Like, people are going to come regardless. So maybe we don't have to lift a finger. Maybe we keep things exactly as they are because they're going to, you know, every time you go to Target, the parking lot's full, regardless, right? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's where do interesting we go because. Well, it, it is interesting because I've experienced a similar thing that you are, this almost um, this exasperation of being like, I'm trying not to spend my money on Amazon. And you are all making it so difficult right. for me not, not to, to do it. Right. And I've kind of just more resigned to it at this point because it's so funny you bring this up because I, I might have brought it up in the past, but I don't think so. Yeah. Like there were many things that I've encountered since I bought my house where I've had to go to Amazon because I've tried to use others and they've just failed or just don't come through or whatever. So a good example is I needed like a bunch of outdoor stuff, like a weed whacker and a blower and all this stuff. So I was like, I'll go on Lowe's.com at least. I'm not saying I'm going to go to like, you know, some local hardware store, but I'm like, I'll go to at least to Lowe's, order it, and then they'll deliver it from the local store at least or whatever. Sure. They like couldn't get their shit together, couldn't figure this out. I, like after a week, like I canceled it and went on Amazon and bought everything and they've just been got delivered like Lowe's has been horrible since the advent of COVID. They've been terrible. I, it's, I've, I've heard similar things. Then we have the stuff. I'm really engaged with GI Joe and we have this stuff with Target, Walmart, all these different places where they have their exclusives. And I've just heard through many collectors that finding anything in the store yeah. is not going to happen. And, and they're not saying like, Maybe you'll find like a peg warmer or something. Nothing. Nothing. You're not going to find anything. You have to just find them online on their websites and hope for the best or go to, you know, go to other merchants to find them basically secondhand. Right. Uh, or marked up. So I'm finding this experience and we just I'm, I'm finding this experience even with Chewy, which I really like. I like that website a lot. Oh, Chewy for dogs. For pets, and yeah. right. And they're just always out of the food that I need. And oh, okay. Amazon has it. I'm like, fuck this. Like, I'm not going to. There's something to be said about ruthless efficiency. There is no doubt that Amazon has earned its virtual monopoly on yeah. American commerce because 
they are better than all of these companies. And I wish that weren't so because I'm trying to break this mold in some way and, and shop from others and and all of that. But I'll say I I never have a problem with them. I never have a missing package. Things arrive mostly early. Very efficient. And so it's like compete yeah, or, or, or die, dude, at it's some true. point. It's true. Yeah, they're making it very, the, the competition is making it very easy for Amazon. And I know it's hard to compete. You know, you got this global entity that's not afraid to stretch its financial limbs and do all that. But you know what? Target's not a, a small budget thing either. They're a, they're, they're highly funded operation. And then, you know, how much of it goes, Chewy is an interesting one because that's a, a solely online retailer, right? But the ones yeah, that are kind of dab- Best Buy and Walmart and Target, the ones that are dabbling in the retail space, the physical retail space and the online space, that's weird because it's like how much are they getting from the manufacturer and how much are they allotting to online versus you know stuff that you could find in, in physical stores and how much of the problem with toys is Hasbro and you hear a lot. I mean, toy collectors will know. People that are really in that space will know like Hasbro is a, you know, supposedly a big pro- distribution problem, you know. And I think I think with toys, especially G.I. Joe, right? And Transformers is another one. Adult collectors just make it hard, you know? I mean, think about growing up. Adult collectors wasn't really necessarily a thing. Like, yes, Lionel trains and stuff like that. But now, you know, you think of Lego, you think of Transformers, you think of certain girls' toy lines, you think of G.I. Joe, Star Wars. Like, it's double... Then you know they they have to serve double the consumer base. Who's this? Oh, Cobra. look! look you are saying about adult collectors. Look, you're what I'm saying is you're the problem. <laughs> no. That's what I'm saying. But you know what I mean? No, but they, they, I'm showing the same figure over and over again. It's awesome. Like how many of them I have? How many, so- I am an, I am one of the adult collectors <laughs> that buys five. And of And you're these troop things. building. Yeah, I'm, and I'm I'm troop literally building. troop building as well. That's hilarious. So I am one of the people. I am one of the people everyone hates. But I would say this. Yeah. If I went into a store, I've never been in a position as a star. Like when I used to collect Star Wars figures, GI Joe, whatever, as a kid, I never had the means or even the wherewithal to troop build or anything like that. Sure. And I think as an adult, I could clear come go in every day and clear the pegs and have no, and there would be no financial consequence for me. But I don't think I would do that. See, I think that's I've big. never been I've never been baited into it where it's like wow, there's all of these. Cobra officers or something because they're right. never in the store anyway. But I like to think that I would just maybe leave some for others because this is literally what people are doing. And it's like those videos. I think you might have been even referencing with the Pokemon cards where they I think Target and some others stopped even selling them or Walmart something because they were like, this is just not. Yeah, except this is Black Friday style behavior like every day. Daily. Yeah. And I, I just find American commercialism incredibly cringy. It's crazy. I. I I know that there are things like I just was kidding with my all my Cobra officer figures, but I'm like really very laser focused on the things I like and I collect. And you can judge me for that, I guess. Maybe I'm maybe I'm part of the problem, but I'm not about gratuitous commercialism. I very rarely spend money, actually, and I don't want anything. You have your my my house is fucking empty. (laughs) Yeah. going to see it soon. There are just rooms in this house that have nothing in it. You know, like so I don't want like a pauper over there. Right. It's so. I, I love I love hearing this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be interested to, to follow up with you about how this all goes. And you were, it was funny about how you were saying how the, 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 the list can change, too. I was going to I think back to our own experiences as children, how annoying me was we must have been because um, you had to you had a 
You had to just go and hope for the best. I remember that. That was part of the excitement of collecting action figures in the 80s and 90s. You had no idea what you're going to see. No. I remember going and being so excited. I remember going in May. It was April 1999 when the episode one figures came out. Dad and I went to Toys R Us at midnight that night. I remember that really well to to get them. And you just didn't know what you're going to find. You didn't know what was going to be there. And it was so exciting. There's like no mysticism to it. That was the beginning. That was probably you just marked the beginning. You that era was the beginning of the adult collector, I feel like in like mainstream. Oh, yeah. I was like the youngest person there. I was I was in ninth grade. I, I must have been one of the yeah, youngest people there. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. You know what, dude? And also, I have to give you props for what you just said about not going in and just taking the entire toy aisle if you saw a bunch of stuff. Because I'm going to be honest with you, because of the nature of things and the vicious cycle that it sort of perpetuates, right? If I go to Target tonight and there's two PlayStation 5s, I'm going to get both of them. I'm not going to leave one for the next dude. Because I finally, you know what I mean? It's like I finally I saw you, I And am I to blame for that? I finally get, I've been looking for a PlayStation 5 for over a year, you know? I, 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 I by the way, I've been looking for you. Been. I've been looking for you too. We do have a, an emergency we PlayStation do. 5 for we you. We have a contingency so, plan. Right. Because we have, we have four PS5s in my house. Yes. And you agree. Actually, five, including the dev kit. <laughs> you are. It's a, it's a test, there a test is. unit. Oh, that's sick. But uh, for the new game. But. Yeah, so we have, so I bought Michael one for Christmas. I, I, I ended up getting four of them. Yes. And I, I got them naturally. I'm, I got them naturally just by being at the right space at the right time. Yeah. Props A couple to connections that. that, you know, might have given me a heads up about this X, Y, and Z. But sure, sure. So I got one for my living room, one for my bedroom. I gave one to someone that needed it. And then, oh, no, no, that wasn't what it was. Dustin did that. I gave one to my nephews, our nephews. Yes, yes, yes. And then I gave one to Micah. And Micah has hers and she doesn't. You know, oh, that's so right. She has the, yes. She's the one who's gonna. That's the contingency. If she mm-hmm. she's gonna, Mama Micah, shout out. Yeah. If so. if we need to resort to that, and she's still cool with it, at least I got my bases covered. But I won't. If I see two tonight, I won't buy. I won't buy two. Yes, I will. I don't <laughs> think they'll. I, I, I'm I'm telling. You, I don't think they would any. let you do it. I don't think they let you do it. I don't oh, think they're gonna let you buy. That's it. interesting. That's really interesting, man. I think you're ahead of your skis on that one. Wow. Personally. Okay. All right. And and outlets like Best Buy have told me now. This is one dude, so who knows? But they've told me don't even bother. The the, the store. This was four months ago, probably. The stores aren't even going to carry the 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 PlayStation fives in the physical spaces. Yeah, four months ago online. that was true. Yeah, Anything that was true get... four months ago. Okay. Okay. That was on them. Okay. I don't so know that that's true story. now, but I think I think it's both. But there's also, as you were saying, massive supply issues too because of backups out of China and on all the ports in America. Yeah. I, I was reading a story that Sony contracted three 747 cargo plane style planes full of PS5s to get them into the UK. Oh, shit. And I, apparently, it's like 120 pallets. Like a couple of days ago. Oh, there, no There was way. like Reuters and everyone was writing about it. Yeah, like they're, they're like chartering planes, which is like an Apple style thing. Apple always charters planes to move merchandise quickly. I never knew about that. But this. that's a very expensive thing to do. Uh, Holy shit. And, yeah, so they're, yeah, that's what they're like. Yeah, because it's a spur of the moment thing. It's not something they have in place. It's a, it's an additional cost or whatever. Right, right. exactly. But they're like, what's it more? We got to get these things in the market. We got to get these shit. things in the market. So that's interesting. Yeah. Cool shit, man. Yeah, yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Go to your happy price, price line. So, Dave, let's talk about Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. Let's do it. Which came to PlayStation 2 November 17th. I played it on PS3, where it was re-released via Sony-owned studio now, Sony-owned studio Bluepoint, which ported it on behalf of Konami in 2011. You can also play it on Nintendo 3DS. You can play it on Xbox 360. So you have some options. Vita as well, if you want. But I needed that 3D camera, so I needed to play it, the PS3 version, which is the uh, subsistence or whatever version yeah, of it that came out in 2006. Right. right. So I want to say at the top of our conversation about MGS3, and this is just a Colin problem, but I'm so engineered as a critic and a person who absorbs games to tackle things a very specific way and a very specific cadence that if that's thrown off, I feel like I can't talk about a game at maximal quality. I'm going to test that today because I beat Metal Gear Solid 3 two weeks ago or so, and I usually hate leaving massive gaps in between beating something and talking about it yeah because i forget about all the finer things although i have many a page of notes so it's just because we had to move this topic around for scheduling issues i usually time things out a lot better than that so i'm a little disappointed from that perspective because i just have other games in my mind oh now. you're gonna do this great. is that's true this that must the, be very difficult yeah. for you actually but you're gonna it do, is gonna I, be great i've played two games since you know metal gear solid 3 so wow, it's, yeah so shit. so i want to discuss this from a lot of different angles because i think there's much to say, but I'm curious just overall what you think of this product and also what your original engagement with it was, yeah. because when it came out in November 2004, this was that vaunted Colin year or so from summer of 2004 to summer of 2005, somewhere in there where I just wasn't really playing games. I played, I think during that time, I played San Andreas and I played Resident Evil 4, and I think that was basically it. I was like, you know, hanging out with my girlfriend and I was in college and I was just too cool for games. I don't I don't know. I don't know what was going on with me at that point. <gasps> so I missed Metal Gear Solid 3 when it came out. I didn't care. I knew it came out, but I was like, yeah, whatever. When I moved to California and worked for IGN in 2007, I was close with Mark Ryan Silly, who was the head of IGN Guides, a good friend of mine still to this day. He's a huge Metal Gear fan. And he gave me I was bored. I was I lived in a house with a few other people I didn't know. I had like a small little TV and. I could borrow anything from IGN I needed, so I had console access and all of that. But he was like, you know, take this Metal Gear Solid 3. I think he, I think he gave me Zone of the Enders 2 and a few other things that, another Kojima game, but a few other things that he wanted me to play. And I, I remember very vividly playing this game and being completely turned off immediately. And I, it's funny because in going back to the game a few weeks ago and beginning it again, I was like, I, this is exactly what I remember. I remember being in like a wooded river kind of basin area and I remember two things about it. I'm like, why do I have camo that's counting my percentage? This is what I was feeling at the time. <laughs> and why am I eating food that's like rotten? And <laughs> and I remember being perplexed by this. And I remember being really, I, I dreaded it because it reminded me so much of one of those games I just mentioned, which was Grand Theft Auto San Andreas also came out in 2004. And that is a game... And I, I messaged this to you and I, I said, this game just oozes 2004. They both do because their games, Metal Gear Solid 3 and, and GTA San Andreas, while both very good games are and great games in their own respect, are games that just don't know when to stop. They don't know what is fun and what isn't fun. And Metal Gear Solid 3 really oversteps that line in a way that I don't think is charming in any way that I think doesn't make sense, that I think breaks the immersion there's a lot of weird stuff in this game. And I and so my opinion of it is that it's it's fun. I really love the cast of villains and I wish we got to know them better because I think they were really 
MGS one like almost. Yes, we just didn't very get the, colorful. We just didn't get to know them very well. Not I like the I like the story. I like the the political geopolitics of it, the alternate history. There's a lot to really like, but then there's a lot to really not like. And I think in the in the cracks, this game, I it won't let me take it seriously. It won't let me play it. It won't let me immerse myself in it because it has me in a screen where I'm picking bullets out of my skin. It has me hunting for frogs. <gasps> Right. I, I, I don't understand. I could not wait to talk about this with you. So and so. That same problem, I was like, I was totally right. When in 2007, I was completely right about this from my point of view, where this game is a relic of that particular late PS2 era, wherein it is like San Andreas, where San Andreas was like, do you want to exercise? Do you want to <laughs> eat? It's like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to eat. In, in, in Grand Theft Auto? No, I don't. And it reminds me a lot of even Zelda on Switch, Breath of the Wild, where it's like, you want your sword to break every five times you swing it? That's fun, right? I'm like, no, that's not. That's not fun. Yeah, you don't you wanna, like you wanna, that. Kind you want to scale the side of a mountain and then it starts raining? <laughs> that sounds fun, right? Like, there's just certain des- design decisions that I feel like someone should have stood up in production meetings and been like, what the fuck are we doing? We have this really great game. No one wants to sit there and put ointment on a burn and on a screen that right. no, no one wants to do that. Right. So that's the thing I walk away from very strong, solid structure of a video game. Very endearing, obviously very important to the Metal Gear ethos and mythos, of course, but a game that suffers under a lot of garbage weight and a game that I think is definitively the worst Metal Gear game of the three I've played so far, like no doubt. And I'm, I'm surprised in some way that people hold it in such esteem because I think it kind of loses what Metal Gear was all about, in my opinion. Now, who am I to say what Metal Gear is all about? I used to, when I played Metal Gear Solid 5, I was like, this isn't Metal Gear at all. And everyone yelled at me. I was like, this is like this is a mission based game where you get scores and and items and it's like what the hell is this right and so maybe i just don't know what metal gear is and i can also accept that but i'm curious i've said a lot here so i'm curious to just set it pitch it back to you what what do you have to say at the top i love that you're throwing down the gauntlet on this game i was really really one of the biggest most intriguing aspects of doing this topic with you is i know you didn't get a, a very rare game a very rare mainstream playstation game that you never got the opportunity to play all the way through so i was for me, this is a big this is a big deal to be sitting with you, Colin Moriarty, talking about a game that you're experiencing all the way through for the first time. So I was really interested in where the conversation was going to go, and I I totally relate to what you're saying. You know, you're saying you know clever ideas and inventive mechanics do not a good game make. You have to have the discipline. It's very Kojima esque. There's a lot of really cool ideas in this game. Now, here's where I'll start. I love this game. I love it now, and I loved it back then, and it was a really interesting game for me, Kyle, kind of a bittersweet memory because, and kind of a very Dagon-esque timeline with this game and thinking it back and pegging all the dates because, of course, we know this game came out in winter 2004, right, in North America. That's four years, almost exactly four years into the life of the PS2, right? Mm -hmm. And... I was almost always very behind the times in video games, although I love video games. I've always, almost always been an avid gamer, despite some lull periods, but 
I was always at least a year or two behind getting a console, starting with the PlayStation 1. I got that a year after it came out. PlayStation 3 I got years after it came out. And then PS4 I I got literally years after it came out. PS2 was the only one in the whole run of PlayStation consoles that I got around the time it debuted. And I remember getting this game, buying it around the time it came out. I didn't pre-order it or anything, but I did buy it. And there it sat on my video game shelf for almost three years because I didn't crack the shrink wrap. I, I, I have a very fond, very precise memory of playing this game for the first time. Our daughter, Lilia, our firstborn, was born in late March of 2007. And it must have been that summer, summer of 2007, it might have even been fall of 2007, where I started playing it. And I remember, I have a very distinctive memory Lilia was really a bad sleeper. You may remember that. Like she was very difficult to put down for naps and she was very, very hard to even put down for sleep at night. Like she really bucked and kicked and resisted going to sleep, this kid. And I remember one night, (laughs) Helene was upstairs doing like, think of like the Indiana Jones. We always make this joke, the Indiana Jones where he's going, he's in the temple with the idol and he's got the sandbag and he's got, like that's how it was with putting Lilia down. Like you had to put her down just so, and like get out of the room without the, and we knew just where to step on the floor without the floorboard squeaking. Like it was like an operation getting this kid to sleep. It was a nightmare. It was an unholy nightmare getting this kid to sleep. And I remember one night I was sitting in front of the PlayStation playing this game for the first time. And I was watching the opening iconic theme song. One of my favorite openings of all time, you know, instantly you get that campiness, that James Bond esque tone and all that kind of stuff. And Helene came down. She looked exhausted. Lilia was just asleep. And it was the first time that I remember in a long time. We were in our first little house. Again, it's 2007. And and Helene walks in the room and the opening of Snake Eater is playing. And she's like, what the hell is this? You know, like she she doesn't know modern video games really, you know, outside of Nintendo and all that. So she was like, this is really kind of crazy and cinematic for a video game or whatever. And I remember her. She never commented on anything I ever played. And right from that opening theme song, those opening graphics, how beautiful it is with the planes turning to camo and everything, I was I was hooked. And it's also important to note for me, like I went straight from Metal Gear Solid. I never played Sons of Liberty until months ago when you and I covered it, Kyle. So I skipped, for whatever reason, I skipped from one to three. I loved it. I got all the way through the game. I found it very immersive. I liked the interesting mechanics. We'll get into all that. We won't. We won't have to cover that ground just yet, but... I really enjoyed the experience. And then I sort of folded up video games all together with this. It was 2007. I finished the game. And aside from like effing around on like the Wii Virtual Console playing like retro games, I really didn't get back into playing a proper video game until oddly enough, the advent of like the Wii U in 2012. So there was a huge gap for me from Snake Eater all the way to getting back into modern video games. And I really didn't get back into PlayStation in all honesty. Until you and I started Knockback and we did our first topic, was it 2017 or 2018 with Resident Evil 2 Remake? That was that was when I got back in, you know, four, three or four years ago into PlayStation. So this kind of closed the book on PlayStation, this game for me, for a long time. And I was really interested in getting back to it and comparing it to modern video games because I've had the opportunity to play some some of the greats, especially for Knockback. So it was a, you know, it was a great way for me to go back in experience a very specific era of video games where i think 
presentation was turning, graphics were turning. It was a real turning point for video games, I feel like. It was coming out of a more primitive era and getting more sophisticated, which is a big part of the conversation for me. And really just a very enjoyable experience. And I can't wait to relate all of that, but really even more so in a 60-40 capacity, I'm 60% more interested in exactly the experience you had with this game. And I think a lot of it, it's interesting too, Kyle, that you bring up San Andreas. Now, did San, remind me, did San Andreas come after GTA 5 or Vice City? It was No, no, GTA 3 and then GTA, Vice City, then San Andreas, then 4, then 5. Oh, Vice City was the game right before San Andreas. Right. So okay. it was, yeah, like one and two were the top down ones that no one cared about. Cared about. Right. Three was like the one that was the one we all know. Then right, Vice City and San Andreas were the ones built on that. See, I so, wonder, yeah. and you loved Sons of Liberty. And I wonder. Yeah, I think Sons of Liberty is awesome. Like coming, like how do you, in other words, like how, you loved Sons of Liberty. How, for you, how do you follow that? Vice City was like an epic Vi- game. How the yeah, Vice City is all, Yeah, Vice City is my favorite Grand Theft Auto. I, oh, and and I, I agree. Maybe that is that could thing be part of it hard, too. It could hard to follow up. I think so. But. I don't want to make it I'm kind of ragging on it. I don't want to make it seem like I really enjoyed playing it. Like I'm glad I played it. I think it's got so much clever so much so much cleverness to it. I think it explores really interesting themes. And like I said, I think the characters are really cool, but I think it just fundamentally doesn't add up in some ways to me where I feel like it doesn't there are certain decisions that they make that really in my opinion injure the game. Okay. That's why I'm really curious to see them remake it because I would I would bet that some of the things I am going to talk about are things that they will fix. I'm sure. sure. But we will but but we will get into that. Let's but I just want to make it clear that I enjoyed it. I think it's a it's a very good game. Like there's no doubt about it. I'm not I don't think it's a bad game by any stretch of the imagination. But I think it suffers under the weight of trying to do too much. I think that that just happens. It does. I think that happens and, and that and, and it's a certain hap it's a certain generational thing. That's why I was saying 2004 just has a lot of games like that. 2004, 2005, 2006, a lot of games feel like they're trying to do too much. Another era of game that feels like that is 2009, 2010, 2011, when every game came with an online competitive multiplayer mode. It's just certain things reduced to this mean, this curious mean that doesn't make any sense. And that's kind of where I am with Metal Gear Solid 3. So I want to start at the top, though, and this was a major confusion. In fact, some people wrote in about this. Because I had said on Sacred Symbols last week, now I don't want to time this too much and confuse people because, again, this is an evergreen (laughs) podcast, but on Sacred Symbols last week, I noted that I was confused about who Big Boss is or who, like, the or I guess Naked Snake is. It's confusing. And I was saying, like, is this... So I was saying on the show, I was saying it out of ignorance, and the audience knew that, where I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. Here is my prediction. Okay. And people were laughing at me because I was like, my prediction is, is that this is a simulation because how does, how is Solid Snake in this game, right? And people are like, you're so fucking stupid. That's not <laughs> Solid Snake. That's big, you know, big boss. And I'm like, but I understand. So here's where the things break down. This is maybe what I just don't know about Metal Gear. I was like, I thought that big boss was the father of these various people, not the clone Yes. The, the, so in other words, when you have David Hayter voicing the guy three years later after the previous game where he's voicing the guy, why wouldn't I think that that's the same guy? Because I wasn't aware that they're, they're clones and that why wouldn't Liquidus in the first Metal Gear also be look and sound like Snake? 
that makes it very difficult. I know Kojima so wanted Kurt I don't Russell, know. right? And maybe that would have helped. I don't know. I Japanese don't know. Like I, 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 I just I'm confused about. So I think I went in being like I, not even realizing what they were really saying because, and it's it kind of makes you feel silly, but at the same time I'm like, but but it's the same guy. Yeah, it's the same. And I, I just I don't understand. <laughs> He's he's younger or he has like hair now, but it's not like and I just kept thinking of liquid because I'm like liquid's a different person, like a totally different man. I know he they're brothers. But they don't. So, you know what I mean? So I was, I was just a little bit confused by that. Completely understandable. If it makes you feel any better, it was on this playthrough that I really took the time to go in and understand the timeline and the characters and how things worked. And of course, this game serves in a prequel capacity to the entire franchise and everything. So you have to kind of. And there's a lot, there's a lot of story it, just in this one game. So there's a lot, what is it? 31 years before, before the events of Metal Gear or whatever. Yeah. Or Metal, Metal Gear, Gear is 1995. Metal Gear, Metal Gear is 1995. I think Metal Gear Solid's 2005. Right. Right. Well, Metal Gear Solid 2 is 2005, something like that. And then, yeah, I think this is 1964. So this, this is, takes place far earlier. And that's why I was like, oh, it's some sort of. I, I feel silly say it, but I was like, oh, it's some sort of simulation that where they're going back to where Metal Gear came from and they're learning or that, that we're not supposed to quite know because I, I was just so hung up. I'm like, this is just the same man. I don't yeah. understand. That makes it very confusing. So I was, but Mike Poe wrote into us and said, Yo. hello, brothers Moriarty. Yo. After finishing MGS3, how did you all feel about Big Boss as a character? Fans of MGS1 and 2 would only know him as the terrorist leader of Outer Heaven and clone daddy to Snake. See, I didn't understand that he was a clone because liquid. Never mind. It's a, after it, this. After this game, though, I became so much more interested in Big Boss than in Snake. The extent of Snake's character arc is be a badass super soldier, but the ending of MGS three sees Big Boss as a dissatisfied pawn of the U.S. government forced to kill his mentor to save face. The seeds of his founding of Outer Heaven had been set. Does this game make you more substantially care about Big Boss, or will Snake always be golden, the golden boy of the MGS series to you? So again. Having gone through the game thinking I was playing a simulation for some reason, I don't think I really fully absorbed in real time the gravity of Snake's fall and why I think, and I was saying this on Sacred Symbols, that it makes a lot more sense to me having played the game now, understanding why they're very keen on remaking MGS3 specifically. Because when I when I heard that, I was like, why would you make Metal Gear Solid 3 again? Why wouldn't you go back and metal, remake Metal Gear Solid? But it makes a lot of sense because it is the beginning of the story. So... They might be looking for a different way to tell the story by starting in the origin and maybe eschewing Kojima completely. I don't, I don't think they're going to be maybe able to do that. I feel like he maybe is involved, but I hope so. I hope so. And we'll find out probably through third parties. I don't think I think those bridges can be repaired if enough money uh, is used as glue. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. So we'll see. But to Mike's inquiry, what, what did you think about Big Boss? What did you think about the character? And it is interesting. Like you see... This reminds me a little bit of the show, The Americans, I, I, or not The Americans. I'm sorry. Um, uh, what's that? That Showtime show, Homeland. I'm sorry, oh, Homeland. Homeland. Sure, yeah. Where uh, uh, The Americans is that FX show about the Soviets. Homeland is about terrorists in the Middle East, and you kind of get a glimpse into why they become that way in some sense. And you and Ron Paul used to talk about this and others. Like you, you un terrorists don't just become terror. Not you don't have to agree with them, but they don't just become terrorists to become terrorists. They usually have something really at the heart of their rage. And this game represents the heart of the rage of 
of, I guess, all of Metal Gear Solid's entire legacy and the origins of this this group of bad guys, Outer Heaven or this terrorist organization. So what do you think about what Mike had to say about Snake and Big Boss? And what do you think about him as a protagonist? Yeah, it's a great way to start the conversation. I mean, there'll always be a special place in my heart for Snake because that's where Metal Gear started with us, dating back even before Metal Gear Solid, you know, dating back to the NES slash Famicom and MSX and, you know, where the franchise began for us as kids. But there is something really, really cool about this story, getting all the background and texture to who we would know who would be like one of the main villains and what, you know, what caused that turn you know he's tricked we see he's lied to he's abused he's taken advantage of you get kind of sympathetic you get a little kind of texture into why this character became the guy he be you know he becomes and then you get to think back in retrospect to your experiences with that character say okay this is the origins of this dude this is kind of cool and you know i really dug that and i think overall with this story I think I knew you would be in at least again for the alt history aspect of the game because it kind of blends the you know real Cold War events with some alt history, really inventive and kind of fun alt history components. Yeah, it's which awesome. I think it's is awesome. awesome. I love it. But definitely, there, this story is so thick and complicated, and it's a prequel, and it's full of all this political intrigue and double crossing and triple crossing and spy versus spy and all that kind of stuff that there's no way you're going to be down for really trying to understand it if the characters weren't interesting. And the character of Naked Snake slash Big Boss, the boss, I would say Eva, and I would probably argue also Ocelot, just those four characters being so interesting really grounds, for me at least, my interest in the story and being down for those long cutscenes and descriptions and twists and turns and plot twists and all that kind of stuff. It was really kind of a satisfying thing, but I think it does start with the characters. They're very interesting. And especially if you know Metal Gear generally before you tackle this game, I think there's a lot there's a lot there for a Metal Gear fan and for you know or even for potential fans of the series. You know, there's a lot of fodder there for you know good stuff. I mean, I, I'm the type that wants to play. You know, it's like this is my free time, taking a breath from family and responsibilities, and sometimes I could definitely get impatient with the cutscenes, with the exposition, with the story and all that kind of... I didn't go through that with this game. And there's some... Mm. I mean, especially towards the end, man. It's yeah, it's pretty brutal. It could be pretty brutal. But I was all in for all of it. I really was. No, I, I on, on that front, I was too. I, I, I was quite enthralled. I was really intrigued and interested in the alternate history. And there's a term future history, which is a confusing term in writing. But what it basically means is that in future settings there is a history that is understood to have occurred that is different or has maybe not even had the chance to occur yet. For instance, in a story, World War III can be part of the future history of that story, of that story even though World War III has never occurred in our, in our history. It's required for that to have happened. I see. So when you look at Metal Gear Solid and Metal Gear Solid 2 through those lens, or even the original Metal Gear, which all took place in the future from when they were, they were, um, they were launched on their various systems, Metal Gear Solid 3 is the first game, as I understand, to go into alternate history it actually requires you now to go into real events not as they've transpired through discussion but as they transpire through experience so that's what i think makes this really interesting in the cold war setting 1964 they get into the cuban missile crisis i love how they get into the, i mean i'm sure you know this you're into this sort of stuff you like a lot of world war ii post-world war ii soviet era intrigue and all of that it's well worn now that 
JFK made a deal with the Soviets to get the Jupiter missiles out of Turkey, and that was ha- done very quietly to get the Soviets to remove their nuclear warheads. I never from, knew that part from of it. Cuba. Do you know that? I actually learned something from this game. Oh you know, yeah, you, you're so oh. steeped in that. I'm sure this taught you nothing. But well, no, I mean you can learn. Though, I I I majored in college and this stuff, so maybe that's co- more college level knowledge. I wouldn't expect anyone to know it, but from my perspective, I'm like that's cool because then that really gets into the the. There's always been a conspiracy behind that. We know now what the conspiracy is and that we basically let the Soviets save face. A very wise move for peace. Yes. And yes. we can now go into it and pull it apart like the Zapruder film, although it's not the Zapruder film, similar time frame, but and really point and, and see what everything is and how this all ties into World War II and hegemonic kind of fighting, infighting between the three major powers after the war just by population, which would of course be America and by virtue of who won, which would be America, the Soviet Union and China, which China to a much lesser extent, um, the Soviet Union to no extent, but the United States survived the war basically intact. So of course there would be some sort of power structure and sort of power vacuum. And it's cool that they explore that with the idea of this money and, and this, this power that and this knowledge that is to be passed between these people to keep kind of the balance behind the scenes and how they'll use anyone as their pawns. That's why I think the ending of the game is quite powerful. And we'll talk about it because it's awesome to see boss or snake. I don't don't know who the hell he is. Big boss, (laughs) you know, in, in some, they're literally smoking cigars and have their carafes of, of liquor and all that's awesome. And it opens your eyes as to where the, the evil intent against these governments comes from. It also paints a really interesting picture of some of the characters you get to know later, including Ocelot and how, you know, Ocelot was basically embarrassed by big boss on countless occasions. It seems like throughout the course of the game, but then they let each other live and it's yeah. Very interesting stuff there too. I want to ask you about, I guess we would call the antagonist of the game, although I think that there are different antagonists depending on how you look at it. Sure. Gotta talk about the boss. It's that the snack squatch wrote in and say, Hey, Adam and Eve Metal Gear Solid three is hands down. One of my favorite games of all time. The boss is easily my favorite video game character. She's sh- she's such a badass with a truly tragic and memorable story with so many great characters throughout the series. She's the one who stands out to me the most. I would love nothing more than a Metal Gear Solid prequel where we get to play as her and the Cobra unit during World War two. Thanks for all that you guys do. We'll talk about the Cobras because they're my favorite oh. part of the game. Like no doubt about it. Love those dudes and gals. Well, she's a gal, but what did you think about the boss? I, I really was interested in this character, her relationship with our protagonist, the connection and tether that they all have to world war two, which is so mystifying. And, and we'll talk more about the Cobras, but just their supernatural abilities or whatever they have, being rendered in World War II is really cool in and of itself, and that would be cool to see how that would have worked on the battlefield, but we'll start at the top with the boss. What did you make of her and CQC and all this this special training? And <laughs> What do you make of all that? It's so cool, man. I mean, she's a great character to start with because, I mean, first of all, we have a really intriguing plot point with this character because not only is she the co-founder of apparently of the CIA's Fox unit, but she's also the co-founder or the founder of this group of this group of antagonists that we get to know the Cobras. But I think it's so cool that this character is our hero's mentor 
and apparently she's a turncoat. But I think there's just something so cool that I can't get past of like Snake is the protege to a female badass. I think that by itself is so awesome. Like the person, we have this, you know, um, elite soldier and the person who taught him everything he knows dating back. Now we're in the 60s now and then we, we have a history pre-64. So thinking that that's a, that's a female military person and somebody that brought him along and that that person is female, I think that's just so cool. And she's a really interesting character because you're trying to figure her out the whole time and you only see her in dribs and drabs throughout the story. You don't get a clear picture of what she is and she leaves you guessing. But there's a really cool, I don't know if it's the voice acting or the visuals that we'll talk about later, but there's a sadness. There's a real sadness, even in this somewhat primitive by today's standards, CG models eyes and in the acting and in the emotion, the you know the emotional resonance and the mocap and all that kind of stuff. There's a real sadness in the character. And what's cool is that she's a badass, but she doesn't necessarily act like a badass. She's not a heavy like Volgan. You know what I mean? She's something, she's something more nuanced. And I think that just makes her a really interesting character. And you, you're kind of rooting for her to be good the whole time. And of course, the ending, that's spoiling too much yet. You know, that immense sacrifice, not just for Snake, but for her country. Pretty... Pretty touching stuff. You know, again, it starts with her, but I find this with Kojima stuff, Metal Gear Solid specifically, like, he, again, he dances. He walks that razor's edge between camp and serious story. And just when you're like, okay, this is campy and fun. You know, like, Volgan's walking around with the bullets between his fingers, and he's got, like, all these Emperor Palpatine electrical powers. And, you know, you got all these colorful badass characters that are playful and fun and you know it's like really kind of like seems like it's pulled from action movies and stuff like that then all of a sudden he gets into some really heart-rending shit and you're like wait i thought this was supposed to be campy and he kind of pulls you in both directions throughout the whole thing and i think it starts with this character because you have, you know you have ocelot we'll get to him we have volgan we have the cobras we have even characters that are colorful like eva and stuff and then you have a real grounded character like the boss it's interesting to kind of throw her into the equation. I agree with what you're saying here specifically about female characters and in, in Kojima games and having you have to have like one strong female character. I think you can have the sex kind of object if you want as well. But I feel like Metal Gear Solid like requires that it almost feels like a sexless world, which is neat. I mean, obviously, you're dealing with almost all men, the, the nameless soldiers and all of that. But it doesn't quite feel like a sexist world where they're just these people are so ruthless in their various stories and their various capacities that they don't they don't quite even care. But I also feel like with that character, I like the aesthetic, the 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 camo, that white and gray camo is really cool and very futuristic, which is another reason why I thought that this game was playing with some sort of time warp or time setting or, you know, VR mission, basically. That he might have been on. I mean, that was kind of like where my my head was at. Obviously, it wasn't true. What do you make of? Well, I, I guess since we're talking about her, let's just talk about the Cobras. Though. Let's not even beat around the bush. Sure. Tyler Floyd wrote in and said, hi, guys. MGS3 hey guys. is one of my favorite games of all time and Pete Kojima. It's practically a playable Bond movie from the awesome Snake Eater theme to Eva being Snake's Bond girl. Throw in a great cast of villains in the form of the Cobra unit and you've got a masterpiece on your hands. Who's your personal favorite member of the Cobra unit? So 
I really feel like the great draw of Metal Gear Solid, the original Metal Gear Solid, were the the villains. The the story is obviously awesome, but you have obviously Ocelot, who's in this too, but Revolver Ocelot, and you have Vulcan Raven and Sniper Wolf and Psycho Mantis and all that. It was very cool. So and it felt very campy, and that's villains like lieutenant type villains a major draw for me in in fiction. I just love it. I love it in video games. I love being drawn through a JRPG and there's like four or five bad guys that work for the bad guy and you kind of take them out one by one. Think of Final Fantasy 7 with with Shinra and the Turks and you're kind of just fighting them one by one as they go after you. It's 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 pretty cool. Or Mega Man anything like that. So I really enjoyed the the getting to know these enemies which I feel like Metal Gear Solid 2 was missing in some way. I also felt like there were some echoes between villains in Metal Gear Solid 2 and Metal Gear Solid 3. And I, I remember texting you that. Never really went anywhere in my head, but I just felt like I'm like, wow, the Fury and the Vamp are like really... I'm mean, not the Fury, the... What is it? The, the Fear and the and Vamp. I'm like, these are yes, very similar yes, characters. Definitely. Right? And similar. I was like, is that, does that have anything to do with this too? I don't know. Is there more to that? Maybe there is in the, in the lore. I don't know. But I have something to say about each of these characters. But to, to the original question that was asked uh, by Tyler, who stands out to you amongst the Cobras the most? Yeah, we'll go into them one by one. That'll be fun. But yeah, I you know, for, first of all, the character designer in me loves these this cast of antagonists in a lineup. You're right. You got the hulking Volgan with Ocelot. You know, he's kind of small and wily. And then you have the five Cobras who really like standing side by side. They all have different physicality, different powers, different stances, different heights weights like it's a really great coupling of of baddies but i think there's different ways to choose them i think for me as a game player and someone just from a experience in the game standpoint i think i could judge them based on the fun factor of the battle which they're very different we have you know really long range maybe the longest like most lengthy boss fight i've ever encountered in the end and then really fun ones that I found, like the Fighting the Fury was awesome. It was a little easy, but I really had fun with it. It was very atmospheric and scary trying to hide from him and stay one step ahead. And then, you know, very easy ones with the pain. And then the fear I actually kind of found pretty challenging. It probably took me three or four times to beat that, finally figure out how to beat that stealthy dude. But, you know, there's different ways to judge him. The experience, the look, their powers... Um, what we the very little we learn about each one of their characters um, we learn a little bit about the sorrow later on even though that's not that was a weird you know that's that's kind of like a non-boss fight boss fight you know what I mean that then you learn more about that character later and how he plays into the story with some other characters so where do you want to go you want to just go one by one and bullet point these dudes yeah I have them pulled up here we can start with I'm just on Metal Gear's fandom wiki, so we can just go in the order they have them here. Oh, that's good. In no particular order at all, but they have the pain first. And this is a really interesting character, too. <laughs> I don't know. This this really encapsulates why Kojima is so weird and so wonderful. Is It's just a dude who manipulates like hornets. And it's very, very cool. And... This is where I was talking about in my mind about thinking about them in World War II. Like it would have been so cool to imagine World War II being fought and these dudes are just laying waste to the Nazis or to the Japanese Imperials or whoever they're fighting at the time with all of this outrageous weaponry and all of these outrageous powers and what those people might have thought and what what the, the scuttlebutt about these people are. I mean, people must know that they exist, right? So, which is another truly interesting thing about these various villains in the Metal Gear games as well. It's just their 
the knowledge of their existence, why they're even trusted. You would imagine a guy like the pain would be able to really do some damage and does do some damage if he wants to. So we fight him. It's a pretty interesting fight. It's an arena fight in this watery area. Yeah. We don't really get to know him very well before that. He's actually one of the first characters we see in the helicopter. And I think that that's one of my complaints about the game is we just don't really get to know any of them very well. It's disappointing. Yeah, it's fleeting. We get to know, even in the original Metal Gear Solid, I feel like we got to know everyone a little bit better. The further in the game they were, the better we got to know them. So we got to know Sniper Wolf better when we got to know Vulcan Raven. But I feel like here, no matter where you meet them, they just kind of appear. I think specifically with the Fury... And the sorrow, it's like, who the hell are these characters? I don't even know who these characters are barely. And we're fighting them already. So it's a kind of a shame from that perspective. I disappointed from that. I feel like they could have spent more time there. But what did you think of the pain? Yeah, what what is it with us and uh, encountering baddies that command armies of hornets? Like we had that ninja scroll too, right? Sort right, of seems right. like an idea borrowed from like ancient Japanese lore, like maybe even like a ninja power, you know? And I love I love the pain. It's sort of a fleeting boss fight, like you said. I think he's the first guy we meet after the first Ocelot fight. But, you know, it's sort of over quickly. It's an easy fight. But I do like, you know, again, that colorful, colorful characterization and giving a, an enemy or, you know, an, an underling or a mini boss, like, some sort of supernatural power. Especially, like you said, especially in this sort of army traditional army type setting you know where it's like super elite forces and cutting edge weaponry and all that kind of stuff and this guy's fighting by summoning hornets that's that's just fun you know and uh yeah i mean it's and it's a proper way to start off because i think they do ramp up in order of interest you know as far as interesting and intriguing characters so it's a nice place to start yeah i'm realizing now in the list by the way that it's it's in the order that we do encounter them oh good that's good I think what this battle does really well is it brings to bear what Metal Gear Solid doesn't always do well. And a lot of video games don't do extraordinarily well sometimes, which is giving you many things to use, but not really giving you a reason to use them. And I think this battle does a nice job of trying to convince you because you have to break like his armor, basically, that he's given by this these hornets. And you have to do it with explosives or your shotgun or whatever you can. So it, it has you kind of rotating through a lot of different options. And I think that that's really cool. It's a very Good manageable point. fight. And I also dig that it really dives into the part in the pun, but it dives into this really, I don't know. It's, it's just realistic fear of bees or hornets as you're underwater and how they're notorious for kind of, especially I think hornets and others that kind of wait for they you wait. to resurface. And so they play with that really, in a really that nice way sense. where you can swim and swim away from them, but you have to kind of, Get away from that. I really dug that fight and would have liked to have seen more from that character, but that goes on to become a theme. After that, we have the fear. And this is cool because this gets into kind of reversing the stealth camo and a lot of traps set for you in this arena that you're fighting him in. But I felt like this character was very vamp-like and that was something I couldn't escape from. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but... That, that just in, in contributed to this weirdness I was feeling where I was like, is everything as it seems? Because we've seen a character like this before, just the last game. But what did you make about the focus here on kind of stamina? And it kind of shows you, again, a different way to use the in-game systems. Because as you're saying, you have to kind of sneak him out, find him as he's using a stealth camo, as he's jumping around, sure. throwing things at you or whatever. So forces you to stay still. I'm never comfortable staying still in an action game. I don't like it. I feel vulnerable. So what did you think about fighting the fear and, and about the character of the fear? 
That's a great point about sort of employing your mechanics and your weapons and experimenting and keeping you on your toes. I think during that fight, you had to also avoid like the claymores. Should you climb the tree? Should you hide? Should you try to stay on your toes and move around? Like you have to kind of experiment a little bit. And that's, that's a clever, that's a clever mechanic. And I think you make a good point too, Kyle, like by this third iteration of MGS, there is sort of a Kojima-esque feel in his characters, in his boss characters, especially his baddies, right? Like there's some sort of flavor, Kojima flavor that's coming, that's coming to bear, even though all three games, all three MGS games so far are pretty different. There's still that through line, you know what I mean? Where it feels like, okay, yeah, this feels like a Kojima antagonist. And you know, it's funny about the fear. You'll appreciate this. For some reason, I have no idea why, he just reminded me of uh, Sting Chameleon from Mega Man X. I don't know what it was about that. I just kept thinking of him when I was fighting oh, yeah, him. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. The, besides the, the, the fear fight, and stuff. Yeah. It was probably the most protracted experience I had with a boss character. Like, for some reason, I just wasn't getting it. He, like, he would just kill me at the last minute. Like, we'd be, our energy bars would be kind of in sync, and then he would just run up on me and kill me at the last second. And But I like that. I like that he's the stealth expert. You know, he's the master of disappearing into his surroundings. And attacks with the crossbow. I thought it was a really fun encounter. And he was the guy. I don't know if you saw my my Twitter uh, thing. He, I got the bolt, the crossbow bolt, right in the crotch, like directly <laughs> in the crotch. And uh, that really happened. I was like, I had to stop. I had to stop. It was like I went to my cure my health uh, menu and I was like, yeah, that's right. I mean, it was like perfectly. Talk about snake, right? It was like right on the crotch. So that was kind of a fun. I love that. That's awesome. That character. Yeah, they're fun. They're fun encounters. I found myself with the pain and the fear. Like, they were such fun encounters. I thought maybe they would employ this thing of like, you'll encounter them again at a further point in the game, maybe in a different place. Like, maybe you'll encounter the fear inside of a warehouse setting now. Because I think the characters are interesting enough where you could fight them again, maybe in different surroundings, so you could employ different mechanics. Maybe their powers sort of. Um, you know, play out differently depending on where they are, the environment. But they didn't do that. But I had my, you know, I was kind of wondering like, oh, it'd be kind of cool to uh, also not knowing how long the game would turn out to be, which is not a very long game. But the the boss encounters were that good. Like, yeah. you know, it was like, oh, I'd like to get another crack at this dude. I hope we get run into this guy again. And that's a good sign for a game for me. It's like, oh, that, that'll be fun. You know, maybe I'll get another crack at this dude and I'll do better next time. That type of thing. Well, it, to me, I think this... They made a decision. I think Metal Gear Solid 2 felt like it had too few characters. Like yeah, it, I agree. That's my one complaint about it. Yeah. I really like Fat Man. I still think he's my my favorite of he's all awesome. the villains. I just think it's that villain is amazing. A dude is like building nuclear bombs as a teenager. It's like, it's totally <laughs> ridiculous. Skate, Campy. Yeah. It's it's totally insane. And I love it. And he had the roller skates and he's drinking Merlot or whatever and reading poetry and whatever he it's does. I, I really like that character. But the, even there was some there was some kind of pacing issue wherein I didn't feel like we were even getting very much of him in that game. But when you compare it to Metal Gear Solid 3, like you get a lot of Fat Man in Metal Gear Solid 2 compared to the, the way you get any of them in this one. And that is disappointing because, again, there are there's a lot to like about these various characters. I want to talk to you about who I think might be the most intriguing character, although not my favorite, who is the end. And the end is one of the cool characters where you can. And I think I, I don't know if I told you this, but you can or if you read it, but there's like a a couple times where you can kill him before you even fight him. Yeah, you told And me. it's really neat. This is where Kojima's brain works so well. And this is just 
unprecedented stuff in game design. I think still in a lot of different ways. There's a point. So the end is the old character and he's like wheeled around in a wheelchair. And there's a point in the game where you can just shoot him in his head and kill him. You never even encounter him later. And I was telling Dagan as, as well, which I'm sure all Metal Gear Solid fans know, but maybe people listening to this, some people don't. You can even set the clock ahead a week from when you save. If you save in the codec, when you begin fighting him and then go forward a week, he will just die of old age and you won't even have to fight him at all. I mean, the, that, I mean, it's good stuff. It's brilliant. And I'm really intrigued by this character because he's just basically comatose and apparently is such a talented, like the original sniper, basically, like the father of modern sniping. And he just apparently is like so devious that he he springs to life and becomes this deadly marksman it's just and he's got that weird eye very anime like eye that pops out and like allows him to zoom with great accuracy i really dig not only the, the idea behind this character i think it's a cool name i think it's a cool concept but the idea of being able to play with the boss in different ways it's it's reminiscent of course of the of the famous psychomantis fight and it feels like metal gear needs one of those every time one of those fights that just completely changes your expectations and i think this actually has a couple of those we'll talk about another one of them but this is definitely one of those that i think is is very novel what did you think about the end and and fighting him yeah such a koji mask thing right so unexpected i mean doesn't look at the pain look at the fear look at the fury like these are fearsome looking dudes like this is literally like an old man in a camo jumpsuit who looks like he's on you know he's knocking on death's door you know who he looks like to me he looks like the old pervert, old man pervert character from Family Guy. I don't know why he. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like right? the, the neighbor. He just kind of. <laughs> hey Jesse, whatever yeah, you know yeah, that, that, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just reminded me of that guy so much, and for some strange reason, and you know he's got the pet macaw or parrot, whatever it is, and you know what, dude, I was so grateful we had that conversation via text, and you were like, yeah, you could. I, I think I told you, like, dude, what is with this character? I cannot figure out how to beat this dude. Now, know me, right? I'm not, Colin knows this. I'm not a strategy guy, dude. I'm not a look up tips on the internet guy. Like, I want to figure it out myself. I couldn't beat this guy. I, I could, I don't know what it was. I fancied myself as a pretty good video game player. Could not figure out how to beat this guy. And like, I'm not stubborn. Like, I went through the, the trouble of like dialing up my support characters for tips. Like I was doing that all through the game. Like I was employ- trying to like, am I doing the right camo? Am I moving too fast? Maybe I should hide somewhere else. Maybe a different weapon. Like I couldn't even find him most of the time. So in my frustration, knowing the very Kojima-esque outside the box thinking, you know, like this game's Psycho Mantis moment, I think. And knowing that you could just dial up, you know, and you told me, and I think I read it and I saw it on a YouTube video, like you could just speed the clock ahead a week. This character will die or you could have the wherewithal to snipe him when he's in being pushed around in his wheelchair, which is like much earlier in the game. Yeah, it's fucking aw- I mean, that's fucking awesome. That's when I read that. I was thorough. like, that's nuts. That's just like, that's why <sighs> this game is considered one of the best. It's those moments. You know what I mean? If you have enough of those, those rarefied moments in video games those memorable moments that really can't be replicated or those firsts like that's why dude like that's why kojima is kojima and i still haven't played death stranding but when i encounter these moments it's like yeah dude like what are you waiting for like i don't know what i'm going to be treated to with a game like death stranding but this is what we talk about him for right this is this these are why he's the source of 
conversation in video game development, dude. It's, it was just amazing. And I, I'm disappointed at myself that I didn't get a chance to beat him because it looked like a fun fight. I mean, an, a, a fight that could last an hour. Some people said hours, you know, like it's not even that I don't have the patience for that. It's just like, I have to, you know what I mean? I have to get this game done. We have a discussion on the right. boards. I already pushed right, right. back like twice on Colin. So it's like, I got to get through this. So it was my, it was my, I have to unfortunately admit my strategy guide moment where it was like, I have to, thank God somebody told me, thank God Kyle told me about this. I can't beat this guy the old fashioned way. I'm just going to have to grin and bear it. So that's my cathartic no, that's admission no, to you guys. You're so, you're, you're, you have a lot of honor with that because I'm the exact opposite where I'm like, I don't care. I love strategy guys. I, I think used about to write them. I, I wrote, I wrote over a hundred of them. I love them. I think they're great. And so with this game, I actually, I actually didn't use a strategy guide at all to play the game, but I, I printed out a boss like walkthrough just so I knew like what had it like that. Oh, there was, like, a, cool. a, because I'm like, I'm not, I I'd I'd fight and play the ball. And then I'm like, after a couple, if I didn't figure out a couple of times, like I got a couple of them myself, they weren't very hard, but I'm like, I'm not going to sit here and struggle with this game forever. You know, like I just don't have time for this. I got to take and, a page and, out of your book. No pun intended with that, because, you know, you're the guy, right? Like it's Colin Moriarty, PlayStation guy. You have this uh, imposed, like the, the way you're dissecting the game right now. It's like, yeah, dude, like you have every right. You have the most imposing barometer to compare this game to, you know? So it's like, I really should just be comfortable taking a page out of your book with that. It's like, who the hell am I? In other words, it's like, it just, you know, maybe it would help us get through games faster. Like we want to do, well, we want to do a very specific game before the year's out. I won't spoil it. But it's like, which is supposedly not that long of a game, but it's like, you know, if if I just would do that, if I would just kind of like satisfy myself to do that once in a while, it would help. I like doing the video game topics. These are the ones you guys watch the most. You think I don't like them? I do like them. Mm. I do like them. So, Indeed. you know, that could, that could probably help. I need, need to kind of boost myself up to do that more often. Just, I don't want to call it cheating, Jack. <laughs> I mean, I it is. I mean, a, lot of, a lot of people feel that. Way. A lot of people feel that way. But I just, I cheating. don't, I don't care personally. It's just like I don't care. I'm yeah. Not, what? Whatever. I'm whatever. not going to sit here forever. And is there this. a right or wrong way to play the game? No. There. Pro I. I would insist that there is a right way to play, but I'm not. An, I'm not. Uh, I'm not interested in fulfilling that. In fact, <laughs> I, I, I. I will take That's a. Fair. I will take a, a. A quick divergence here just to discuss something I. I should bring up that I. That I think is strange about this game that can be manipulated in a lot greater of a fashion than Metal Gear Solid 2 in my experience, which okay. is there are many, 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 and I don't want to say many, 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 but there are many times in the game where I just ran through areas okay. and like everyone, everyone will see you. But if you get to the next space and then you check more, even if you die, like it's just like, okay, there are parts of the game. I just I, I beat the game in 15 hours. What difficulty I, what, did you play on? Normal. Okay, me too. Yeah, I beat it in 15 hours and I'm, I'm a pretty I'm not slow, like as glacial as you are when I play games, but I'm, I'm pretty slow and i on time to beat or whatever those websites are i never hit like their average so i was surprised to be below average you're always with under. this but i did use a boss guide when i was stuck so maybe that shaved a couple hours off you could you could conceive but i will say that that is one of the lame parts of the game is that they just make it too easy to spoof it like you re i couldn't even imagine playing it on easy because it's probably comical you can literally just keep running and no one seems to like have lethal force and they don't i don't know i i, I did you experience that? Just a, I think as a it's quick a aside? very important part of the conversation. I'm really yeah. glad you're bringing it up. I thought somebody would write into us about this, but that's the thing with me with this game. That's the one problem I have with it, as much as I love it, and I do love it. I love a game with a lot to do. 
We've talked about that before. I love a game with a lot to do. And the thing about this game, it's full of great ideas. Obviously, it's a Kojima joint, right? But there's so much to do. And I thought most of it was actually fun. Unfortunately, what Colin's saying is correct. Our normal difficulty anyway, I'll speak to this. And also, I played on the original PlayStation 2 version. I have it right here. I want to read the back later because it's hilarious. But the game isn't difficult enough, I agree, to really necessitate the use of stealth even and of a lot of the mechanics. You can totally get into a jackpot in this game, even on purpose, and get out of it mostly unscathed, almost at any given time, even later in the game. So as much as I love the stealth, the stealth and the sneaking, I really like the camo index. I don't mind stopping and taking stock of, you know, how, I, how I'm blending into the environment. Same thing with hunting and gathering and kind of managing your inventory of foodstuffs, collecting flora and fauna, you know, plus the rations and the ramen and all of that. Keeping an eye on your life bar and your stamina meter. Like you're going into a new area. Get your backpack squared away for what you think you're going to encounter as far as your items and your weapons. Like, cure and heal. I don't mind doing that kind of stuff. I actually like it. I think it's kind of like cathartic to have a process where it's like you go in. It's kind of therapeutic. You go in, get get through a campaign, and then, you know, sort of take inventory, take stock of yourself, and check all the menus and all that kind of stuff. I like that. Do that while you're hiding. Maybe in danger. It's kind of exciting. But... Really, what Colin's saying, either run through an area or just jump into and just do straight up assault, you know, overt combat, which honestly, I I know I talk about that all the time, especially when we're talking about MGS games. Like, I like the stealth mechanic. I like taking my time and I don't mind that kind of slow process, but I really like, I always bring up um, Bioshock Infinite because I think it's a great example and something I played relatively recently. Dude, I just want to get into combat. Like, sometimes I just want to get into combat, and this game lets you do it. You know, just go in with the AK or with the shotgun and just and just mow dudes down. You know, event, yes, you're, they're going to call, they're going to call, they're going to ring the alarm. They're gonna, there's going to be a, a period of time where they're on alert for you. I think the enemy AI is pretty, pretty decent in this game. I thought it was fairly challenging. It's always interesting to assess how that's going to be in the next iteration of MGS. So sussing that out was kind of fun. But it's it's too easy. That's the thing. Like you don't need to do a lot of this stuff, if anything. You really don't. And no, that's exactly right. Very yeah. important. Com- very important part of the conversation. That was the disappointing part for me. It was like I was just doing it because it was. Oh, this is a good idea. I'm gonna do this. Like it's it's kind of fun. I want to dig the bullet out of my skin with the knife and then you know use the styptic or the disinfectant and put a splint on a broken bone and all that. I don't mind. But you didn't need to. <laughs> That's the thing. You really don't need to do it. Yeah, like that, like, I guess, stops you from gaining your agility back if you don't, or your stamina back, rather, if you don't. Sure, eventually you're going to it's, it's cool. It's cool. Inter- it's same thing with eating. It's like, it's cool that it's, there is, like you said, some interplay. Like, why are you healing? It, it's not just a ration. Now it's a snake and, and or a frog, and it, it poisoned you. So now sure. you need to eat some, or get some pharmaceuticals in you. And it's cool, but... I don't know why I think about civilization a lot. The game where that game is about really deep systems, but even they know that at some point you got to cut it off. Like you can't get any deeper into your economic system than this. You can't get any deeper into your military than this. I feel like at some point a game must accept its various systems as being the deepest that they can to jive with what the intent of the game is. And 
I feel like it's strange when you're in the middle of a boss fight and you're like, oh shit, I don't have my sniper rifle in my backpack. So now I'm going to pause during the heat of the battle, which is fine, but I'm going to pause. I'm going to go into my backpack. And, and so now you picture snake going, like doing the motions. And I'm like, but if maybe it would have been cooler if this all had to happen in real time, which, you know, games do that. Like the last of us, for instance, does yes, that. very where, good example where you, there is no stopping the game, right? You go into Ellie's backpack to craft things and move things around and time is going. You're at a bench and updating your weapon and, uh, uh, you know, you can be attacked. That's, you know what? And I think that maybe some, they just didn't, that could have been a different idea. And then it would have been like, holy shit, there's a real reason for you to hide in this log and start stitching yourself up while enemies are moving around or there's a there's a reason why you really don't want to eat that particular rat, those Russian rations, because you know, you don't like them, but you're starving and you're out of time. So you eat them and, but that's all happening in real time. And maybe you don't want to do that because maybe snake coughs or gags and that gives him away right in, in to enemies around him or something like that as he's vomiting or something. So like there's a penalty for that. Maybe that's in the higher difficulties. I don't know, but, that could be. That's the thing. It's like there's a, there's a taste, right, for all of these systems. They just don't know that they execute them, right? Yeah, and there's no real urgency to have to employ them. So you would have preferred, like, let's say you get a spider bite or you get a scorpion sting. You have 10 seconds, and hopefully you have the remedy in your inventory, right? That might have been, and who knows, like Colin's saying, maybe that's in the higher difficulties. I don't think so. But, you know, that might have been, then there's some, then there's a sense of urgency and you know, at a certain point in the game, you realize like, I'm not really going to run out of ammo for my favorite gun. It's not going to happen. Like at every, around every turn, you're going to be able to restock your exact favorite. Like I loved using the shotgun, just blasting dudes. And, um, it also sped me through some of the parts where I was taking too much time. And you realize I'm never going to run out of ammunition. I'm never going to run out of shotgun shells. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? So there's no real now in the heart of difficulty levels, items and weapons and ammo might be fewer and far between i'm sure that might be a thing actually but yeah it could have been a lot more difficult and then if you're going to come up with all these great ideas really develop a system where you need to do it you know what i mean where it's going to be very hard not to employ these mechanics if you want to get through this this campaign so that's one spot where it was missing and again it's like i love a game with great ideas so i i'm going to love a kojima game but yeah you could employ it you could kind of tie it into the the overall game a little better would have been even better, you know? Yeah, it's the Ar- It's like the old God of War Arkham kind of complaints I've had where just square, 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 square. And people are like, well, why? Well, you can do all these other things. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't have to. Right. So why would I? Like, why would I? Why do I that's just to? That's just bad design. I remember I you saying that in Arkham. And I, I just find that peculiar design. And experimenting with games is fun. Mega Man's a great example of experimenting with the different weapons, but you don't, you stop experimenting once you find, unless you're really nerdy, unless you, once you find what works, you just do it. So if what works, works like brute forcing your way through Metal Gear or Mega Man 2 with a metal blade, it's the best way to play that game. It's cheap, but it's why wouldn't you do it? If you're going to let me do it, I'm going to do it. And it, it works the other direction as well. Yes, absolutely. But one thing I think this game is really does in a, in a really interesting way is it lets you play non-violently and this of course leads into one of the next characters we have to talk about but i wanted to get into this early um because stefan cantonella wrote in and said hello cd rewritable i always played the mgs series pretty aggressively going back to the original ps1 game when i played mgs3 at launch whenever i would get caught sneaking i would take out the big guns and blow away my enemies because of this i had, i got to the river of soul section it hit me how violently i had played the game and oh, series yeah. up to that point and 
really made me reflect on how games place all these simulated humans in front of us to kill. Whenever I play a particularly violent game, I am reminded about the scene and the way I felt back in 2004. I'm just curious about what you think about, we'll talk about the sorrow specifically in a little while in that fight, but in talking about combat and what you can do in blowing people away and kind of cheating the game, there is the opposite side of it, which is if you play it very carefully, you can actually play the entire game without killing anyone. And other than people, you have, like, I think you have to fight the bosses, but that's a, a design challenge in and of itself that I think is quite fascinating. And I couldn't imagine playing this game that way because I don't think the game has fine enough control to play it that way. That's a good I point. I think it absolutely drive me nuts. Very I mean, I was point. playing the version with the 3D camera, which yeah. some of the versions don't even have. So I can't even imagine playing it nonviolently and, and all of that. But what do you think about that approach? I, I often think about that as well. I, I say it a lot that death and killing is like the mechanic of many video games. And I don't think I don't mean that in a violent way. Sometimes it's violent and call of duty or something, but it's just like the elimination of the enemy is the game for a lot of what we do. I feel like it's very reductive and to find a game that embraces and even encourages people to not kill, even though they can, I think is the coolest kind of nonviolence because it's not like, Oh, there it's not gone home or something, which is a great game where it's, you're just walking through a house. There's no violence. There's nothing you can do. It's a game that's like, yeah, here's all of these amazing weapons of war. Don't use them. It's harder not to use them. It requires more of the player not to use them, but it, there's the option. And I think that that's very cool. And I actually think in 2004, that's very rare. And I actually think still today, that's very rare. It's a real design choice and, and, and a real challenge. So what did you think about, what do you think about the idea of playing nonviolently and, and the option to do so, even though I, I didn't embrace it personally? I love that. You know, I love the idea of a pacifist run. You know, I got really acquainted. I've talked about it on the show before with uh, AGDQ, awesome games done quick. And those guys like that, you know, dating all the way back to 8-bit games and maybe even earlier, you know, getting so good at a game where you could do that even on the earliest games where it wasn't intended, you know, where you could go through and do a no death run or a pacifist run of a game where you don't have to fight. You could just jump through and sort of maneuver and platform through levels. But when you're talking about a game like this, a PlayStation 2 game, you know, designing a game on a thoughtful enough level where you can do a pacifist run or a mostly pacifist run, maybe just with the boss encounters, like you said, Kyle, is really a sign of like utmost quality because you're designing a game that works on two very vastly different levels, which must be very, very difficult to do. And just to be able to have that and also be able to have the replay quality. Now, personally, I agree with you. I think it would be very boring, especially for this game. I just don't think it would be very exciting. I like the idea of mixing stealth and overt combat when you have to, and then you mix in the hand-to-hand -hand combat aspect when you need to do certain things, or you need to get something, information, or an item out of, a, out of an enemy, that sort of thing. I like the balance of all the things together. I think that makes for the, the, the most enjoyable experience as far as a game. But just the fact that you could do it, man, that's like, and it was designed that way on purpose, is just, you know, you have to tip your cap. That's a commendable thing. And, um... I think it also speaks to the themes of this this game, which we haven't gotten into yet, too, where it's like, you know, speaking to war, what war is about. War, yeah. war, what is it good for? <laughs> well said. That's much better said. <laughs> or, you know, the idea of you know, constantly vacillating enemies and, you know, the, the fact of, like, new era, new enemy, old enemy is now an ally. Like, that whole thing, it really plays into that. And... um I don't think that's on accident. I think, again, that's a very Kojima thing to do. 
let's get back into some of these characters now that we've touched on that theme mm-hmm. or at least that item which is the fury get back to some of these cobras this is my favorite character i think in the game we don't really get to know him we find out a little bit about him he's like a very early soviet cosmonaut who suffers from massive a massive you know catastrophic issue with a one of the launches i just love the aesthetic of this character there's not much else to say i'm not he's mad and by the way that's really cool that it's it's all about emotion by the way the different enemies i I love that as well about time and space and emotion and feeling I i think that's really cool and he's angry and he's furious and and that's that's great but i really dig just the outfit i i would love to have some sort of action figure of that or some sort of small statue of that or something i just think he's he's so compelling with i the, wonder if that exists ru- with the russian language on his uh, whatever it says on his helmet so, so it's cool. just very very neat what did you think about the fury we talked a little bit about the fight it, it isn't a very difficult fight but no but it's it was i was waiting for it because i knew that I, we were eventually going to encounter this this fallen cosmonaut which is just such a such an interesting concept it is it's so cool it's so what is it with kojima right it's like that kojima-esque zombie astronaut in this case, yes, he's wielding a flamethrower, so it's extra interesting. You know, that undead cosmonaut, like you said. It's like that eerie... I mean, look at the Kojima logo. It's like, he's got a thing with that, you know? It's kind right. of strange. Definitely. Very fun fight. Very disappointing that it was that easy, because I really... Again, it's dark. It's atmospheric in those halls. It's really only lit by, you know, that flamethrower, and you see him coming, and he's taunting you, and you're trying to get behind him so you could blast his uh, his fuel tanks or whatever, his backpack. And it has that future primitive look too. Like, again, like this game works on that level where it's like you have to remind yourself this is 64 because the weaponry looks so advanced, even for that time. It even works in a modern day setting where it's like, God, that kind of even looks modern by today's standard, but a little clumsy and a little campy, which reminds you, like, oh, yeah, no, this dates back to the mid 60s. Super, super amazing art direction and such a great character. And also, like, I think he's one of the encounters in the river when you deal with the sorrow later that is cool. Like he comes up to the camera and you see like that skull face really in close up and he's taunting you like so cool. Well, let's talk about the sorrow who we would encounter next. And Brett Kahn wrote in and said, hi, Colin Dake. So Yo. how many victims did you pass by during the sorrow boss fight? Did it go on for 10 minutes like it did for me the first time when I initially played this back in 2005? This was one of the first times I had played a game that made me feel bad for killing people. How did the scene impact you? Thanks for uh, and keep up the great content. So the sorrow is interesting because unless I missed it, you don't really learn about him until after the fact, right? Like you enca- kind of encounter him and then learn his story yeah. as like the lost Cobra. And I do enjoy, as we had just mo- noted, that the game forces you to confront your own violent tactics. And I must admit, I, it was comical because I had killed so many people in the game that it did go on and on and on and on. And, and it makes the fight harder because you have to dodge them. They're damaging you and holding you and he's shooting these beams. It's not a difficult fight. I didn't die at all when I fought in quotes, the sorrow, but I love this idea of, of death beyond the grave of sorrow, sadness beyond the grave coming back to haunt you. And that even that in the realm of supernatural ability exists and can be rendered in the world of metal gear. So what did you think about the sorrow? The sorrow is so cool, dude. I, there's something even creepy about the look, you know, with the glasses. He kind of looks like a regular dude. And then you learn like of his like ties with um, the boss later on. And then something I heard about his connection to Ocelot, which I never, I never sussed out, but I'll ask you about it when I'm done 
talking about him. I love like, you know, this character that's like so different than again, the other four Cobras that we meet this medium to the spirit realm. You know, I saw a lot of rats, vultures, crabs, and snakes on my things. Like, cause I was constantly hunting for food. I really enjoyed that. That aspect. The rotting food was a little bit breath of the wild weapon breaking for me. It's like, Oh God, does it have to rot? Like if I, if I don't get back to the game in three days, my entire, do you know how hard I worked? Not very hard, but still, I took time to hunt for those animals. That's a, that is annoying. I mean, that's, that's you know, and just then they're too, that's too far. That's over the raise. That's over the razor's edge, in my opinion. Yeah, know? I agree with you, Kyle. With that, you know what I mean. It's like I would even like stubbornly eat them, even if they were rotten, because I was like, I took the time to collect this thing. I'll take the, I'll take the belly pill. I'll no wonder. So how long did it take you to beat? Oh, wasn't that? It didn't turn out to be as long as I thought it was going to be. A lot of who knows if I really kind of settled myself to actually beat the fear. The old fashioned, uh, the end rather, the old fashioned way, it would have been much more. But I think it was only like 21. I think I was at 21 at the end. And that's saying a lot because that campaign at the end, I mean, I feel like you're riding that motorcycle in the, in the, uh, in the sidecar for like, I feel like that's like a third of the game. It's not. Yeah. But it's after it's, a while. We'll, it's like, whoa, this is, we'll get, we'll get into that. We'll get we into want, that. I want to talk about that. But I want to ask you about something that I found, hmm understandable from a from a directorial standpoint from an, an immersion standpoint but also really tragic and that is the use of the english language in this game and the russian language in this game and brian keith actually wrote in about this because he thinks he got me in and he didn't but i'm gonna talk i'm gonna i'm gonna <laughs> let him know why he says greetings moriarty bros i'm writing to clarify something for colin if he hasn't yet learned of this information i'm writing this while listening to sacred symbols episode 174 and colin you mentioned that it would have been cooler if characters were speaking russian I hate to break it to you, but they are, but not to the player's ears. In the beginning of the game, while you rescue Sokolov, he mentions how superb Big Boss's Russian speaking ability is. So in short, they are speaking Russian technically, but to our ears, it's English. Just to make following the story a bit easier, I'd imagine. Just a quick, oh, friendly correction. Well, Hope Brian, you gents have a lovely day. So I didn't explain this very well. I appreciate you writing in, Brian. I know. I mean, I know that they make a big play of that in the beginning. It's stupid. And I'm going to tell you why. Because does that mean that Big Boss is speaking on the codec in Russian? Because he's speaking in the same exact, he, they sound exactly the same. Yeah. When Eva and Snake are together, are they speaking Russian? Actually, when Big, when Boss and Big Boss are together, are they speaking Russian when others are around and English with each other? Well, we don't really know. Right. And I think that this is a really bad oversight. And in fact, the thing that I think they can remedy more than anything in the new one, which is to make them speak Russian in the game. You know, and, just and then just and just slide, and subtitle it. It's so dumb. Mm. I like couldn't get over it. And the reason that it really bothered me, this is the thing that bothered me, I think, almost more than anything in the game is I'm like, we know Ocelot. Yes. He doesn't sound like this. You know, we already know him. We, it, it, this isn't how he sounds. And when, when you know, you're talking to you're talking to Sigint or you're talking to someone on on the codec and boss sounds exactly the same as he does when he's speaking to Sokolov, that doesn't make any sense. So I appreciate you writing in, Brian, and I guess I didn't really explain myself well enough, but it doesn't make sense. It's stupid. And I understand why they did that, because a lot of people wouldn't want to play a game in which 90% of the text is in Russian. Yeah. Or 90% of the, but I would. I would have. Because I think, it would, I think it would have been awesome. And I really think that they need to remedy that in the, it, more than anything in the remake. I mean, they have to fix a lot, but 
they need to make it more differentiated between what language they're speaking because I think it doesn't make any sense unless you assume that at all times boss is speaking Russian, Snake is speaking Russian to everyone at all times. And that doesn't make any sense because when he's on the radio with, again, with people back home, they wouldn't be speaking Russian to each other. And in fact, that one that one kind of controlling, that one control agent that's there, the British guy, I can't remember, what's his name? I want to oh, say Montgomery, Major Zero? That's def- Zero, yeah, that's definitely not right. I was going to say Montgomery, it's definitely not right. He is in a, speaking in a British accent while, yeah, British while Snake is speaking his regular language that sounds like Russian also. This is a massive problem. I'm sorry. I got, a few people wrote in being like, you don't understand. And I'm like, no, I don't think you understand. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I see exactly what you're saying. I have to say, I'm a little ashamed that I didn't pay that much attention to this. But what you're saying is completely understandable. And I definitely am along the same lines as what you're saying. I wouldn't have minded playing with subtitles. But I think you're right. A lot of people wouldn't like that. No, they but wouldn't. I wouldn't, but- I wouldn't have cared. But it would have been a Kojima move, I think, an appropriately Kojima move that would have masked the language in a way that would have been more realistic because it's interesting if you could have played with the aspects of who's speaking what, when in front of each other and even hiding things from each other by speaking the different languages. And certainly it would be interesting to go through all these Russian motions with everyone and then kneel down to go on your codec. And then suddenly you're speaking English. Yeah. I I just think that that would have been that would have done nothing but made the game better. I think that this that one that was a I noticed that line in the beginning with Sokolov because it's a throwaway line like a a total Spielbergian. Don't ask that question. Here's the answer. Right. We're just going to wrap. But I'm still asking the question because it doesn't make sense. (laughs) So I wanted to I wanted to throw that out there. Do you are you uh, you're in agreement with this? Yeah, I am. Those Jedi mind tricks didn't work on you. Again, I'm a little, I'm a little uh, ashamed to have to admit that I wasn't really paying it that close of attention to it. But it is actually a big thing. The more, I, the more you talk about it, and the more I think about it. And you're right. I think it would have been a very Kojima-esque thing to kind of tackle it more thoroughly because you know you're you're having this story that incorporates these different places in the world. You know, especially Russia and the United States, but also obviously England with Major Tom, Major Zero, and also later on with China getting involved in the story. So. You're, you are covering, you know, people from different places and, you know, it would have made much more sense for sure. That is a big, that is a big hole that I didn't realize existed, really. I, I think it's a, it's like a shotgun hole through the game in my mind. I think I just, you're right. Yeah. And that was, an, by the way, another reason why I thought it wasn't real. Because I was like, this doesn't mm. even make any sense. The fuck? Okay. Is, I you know, so. That. So I, I feel like people were a little hard on me when I said that. So not, not many people, but some people were. I'm like, but but don't you? You weren't in my mind, so of course you can't see. But when you're looking at all these things, I'm like, so this is a VR training mission or something? Everyone's just everyone just understands each other. That was just lending credence to that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I just and when I saw and again when I saw like the the difference between the fear and vamp or the similarities, I'm like, okay, so is that vamp? <laughs> like this was like literally what was going through my head as I was playing it. Even with uh, some of the feeling, I, I was like, is that Sniper Wolf? or That's or... pretty funny. But I was totally wrong, of course. Let me ask you about the codec itself, because we had brought this up. Yeah. Avery Ilias wrote in and said, the first time I ever played Metal Gear Solid was Snake Eater as a 10-year-old. Even then, I loved the codec calls. They made me appreciate the minutia of storytelling. Do either of you have a particularly memorable codec call? The answer is no, because one of the things I was surprised about in this game is that you're not on the codec very much. Now, 
I appreciate that because it doesn't really make any sense. We're in the period in the 60s before there's even a microprocessor or anything. Right. Like that. So having a codec is not really possible. It's actually one of the cool things they do in the game. I thought was really clever where, you know, you get your you get your key cards and all that. They give you punch cards, which is awesome. I mean, like that's a really cool touch. So they understand in some way that the technology like the, the, the consoles are all are all big mega computers and it's it's we're not there yet. Right. In the 60s. And so I, I appreciate that they they kind of internalized that and it was cool, but it was disappointing because in my opinion, maybe I'm wrong, but I felt like I wasn't on the codec very much at all. I, I I never use the codec in Metal Gear Solid games unless they call you. I'm rarely ever calling anyone for tips or whatever. I know you can just call secret channels and all this stuff. And I think that's really neat, too. But I will say that I walked away from this game and actually wrote explicitly in my notes. I'm like, did I ever even have any interesting conversations on the codec? It seemed like everything was happening in person, which is cool because in Metal Gear Solid 2, so much is happening with the kernel, uh, with Otacon and others, and you're kind of calling back and forth. And it's cool, but a lot of the story is happening with their exposition through the conversations and Snake relaying word of what he's finding with the president and with whatever's going on. Right. Here, everyone's kind of there. Vulgan, Ocelot, the boss, Naked Snake, like everyone that's important is there. And so there's very little to be said outside of like, do you want to save Snake? And that kind of stuff. <laughs> and then, by the way, can I just, I don't want to shit, I don't want to shit on too much. I know people are going to get mad, but we said this on the last one too. And I just want to reiterate when you're saving the game, why do you think that I want you to then have a conversation with me on the codec? How many Can't times I would, I would, I would love to see the telemetry on that because I bet you people just like skip, 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 and then shut the game off or just shut the game off entirely. It's like, why would you even do, why would you do that? They're saving. They don't yes. want to have a conversation. No, no, they can't help themselves. I agree. I completely agree. Have an option to skip it. There's nothing more satisfying than the, than the, you know, the randomized times where she's like, good luck snake. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, thank God. Like, and all you have to do is get to the buttons, but for some reason, you're so relieved that she's not going to well, talk to you. Well, because I feel bad, too, because I don't want to skip it. Like, I want to hear what she has to say, but then right. it becomes like, I'm not, I'm trying to go to bed, dude. I know, it's and dead weight. So I, I wanted to just say that, too. Well, what, what did you make of the codec and kind of the exposition that came from there? And maybe how my language problem, I think, really comes to the forefront on the codec, because it just, that's where it doesn't make any sense. And that's, that's where the, a good point. And... There's no explaining it. So it's just, it's a, it's a massive plot hole. Yeah. You have to really kind of leave your, suspend your disbelief at the door type of thing with that. The codec slash the radio is interesting in this. Cause like you said, you already made the good point. Like this is 1964. It's a real to real vacuum tube computers. Like this is right. the, this is the era specific era of tech. But I do think generally what you're saying is true. Like the radio is a, basically disposable mechanic in this game now you need it to open eventually get a certain frequency to open a door later on and stuff like that get out of a jail cell but for the most part i find most of you know you have i I think they tried to be balanced right you have the major zero character who's the commander and he's your like main advisor then you have paramedic who's helping you with medical advice and guiding you on flora and fauna and the environment and all that kind of thing. And then you have the singant character who's like the weapons expert. He's going to help you with weapons and equipment. And Let me ask you about that real quick with yeah. Singen. Let me just butt in real quick. Yeah, Did yeah. you find his representation a little like 
I don't want to say racist, but because ca- I'm not, you know, I'm not like that. But like, almost like a, he almost felt like a black caricature of that guy. He's he's very upbeat compared to everybody else, so I think it makes him stand out. Yeah, like it just felt like, hey, Snake, you know, like like that, you know, like he's like really I got you, you know, I got you, Snake, you know, that guy. It, it was cool, but it just it reminded me a little bit of because people had a problem when I said this, like about Barrett too in Final Fantasy VII. Oh, uh, okay, not sure. so much the remake, but in Final Fantasy VII, where I'm like, I feel like this is a little bit of a caricature. That's you know, interesting. In that you th- to, he. So I didn't, I I didn't talk to him very much, you know, that guy. No, I didn't, I didn't call him up very much either. And again, like I like employing the mechanics. I like, you know, I think first of all, you're dealing with a basically relatively linear game. So you don't really get lost a lot. It's not like you're looking, you might be looking for their advice. If you're, you know, you want the exact remedy to how to face a boss, like which weapons to use or whatever. Again, it's not unnecessary. It's just, it's not necessary. It's just another depth, another level of the game that you could do. But it sort of feels optional, you know? The second character was the one I talked to the least. The one, and of course saving, right? I'm, I'm on PS2. I'm on memory card. I have to save. I'm, sa- I'm like a rabid saver. Oh, save I am all too. all the time. Yeah, you know, you're the same well. way. You know, we're yeah. cut from the same cloth with that. I think the one thing that I did like, and, and again, even I would even get this, you know, sort of impatient with it at times, but... The paramedic character, this is a very Kojima move, sort of being the movie buff. And she would share, she's like this movie aficionado, film aficionado, and she would share different movies like Snake. And of course, the answer was like, Snake is never, I'm waiting for a movie that Snake's actually seen. Yeah. This guy hasn't seen anything. You know, I mean, it's terrible. It's bringing up really cool movies, though. And then I realized at a certain point, not only the movie she's talking about, very indicative of the specific period that were set in 1964 which is a cool kind of retro reminder of where, where we're at in, uh, in time. But also, it's a lot of things that are direct sort of inspirations for the game, which is very clever to put in there. It's like, you know, they're talking about the Guns of Navarone and The Fly and Fistful of Dollars and Bridge on the River Kwai and Frankenstein. Like, and then you're realizing like, oh yeah, there's elements from all these things, like Hitchcock's Rebecca, I think they talk about. It's like, whoa, like, North by Northwest is another one. It's like, well, not only are they great movies, but it's like, wow, yeah. It's like, I see exactly where Kojima pulled from, you know, and, and others too, like other more modern movies that they don't talk about. Like there's a very specific nod to the fugitive in this game where it's like, you know, that giant waterfall where he jumps off. It's like, yeah, I, you know, and, and you see like, and Kojima's bringing that filmic movie fan thing into the into play too which i which i always love so that was probably the most delightful thing about the radio for me in this one is like i like the idea of her having the conversations <laughs> very much like in real life when a co-worker is like just a little too in your ear it's like oh my god i hope they shut up like yeah definitely. And it's just a matter of pressing buttons but you still have that same very real life experience with that it's like oh my god i hope she doesn't try to talk to me for five minutes <laughs> Five minutes. I just, I just want to get a cup of water from the water cooler or heat my coffee in the microwave without running into. Like that's what it felt like, you know. It's like I just want to get back to my seat. Thank God I don't have to work in an office anymore. <laughs> I used to just always have my headphones on, even if I didn't. You in an that. office is fodder for a comedy series, dude. I when I think back about like what I used to do in an in the office, like I was so comfortable at IGN and knew that they weren't going to fire me. I literally used to at the one of the last places I sat. Actually, the last place I sat, because they moved us around a bunch, and then we started getting mad. So I just took a ladder from like the, the <laughs> like one of the closets, and I went up. It, these were tall. You never went to IGN, but they're tall, probably I don't know, fifteen or fifteen feet ceilings or something. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, I just 
climbed up and took all the light bulbs out all, all out of all of the lights all around my desk. So when you walk in, because we had this like open floor plan thing where like probably like 50 of us sitting like at all these desks in sure, this huge yeah. wide open space. And then the lights were really bright. And then there was just this one dark space and it was like where I sat <laughs> and it like affected everyone around me. But I'm like, that's brilliant. I mean, yeah, that yeah. already you already have episode one right there. I I what and I sat next to a guy. I didn't like him very much, but he chewed gum all the time, and I hate that that sound. And I didn't want to be rude or whatever, so I just used to I used to just like literally live in a in a conference room as well when I sat next to that guy. <laughs> That's just like lived in conference rooms. Yeah, I wasn't. I was just very. I'm not an office guy. I just I'm just like leave me alone. Like I don't really want to even be here at all. Like I knew that when I when I started my own companies, I'm like no no. No offices. It could oh be a God. very inefficient system, like being in an office. I feel like Zoom calls are the same thing now. It's like, how many Zoom calls <sighs> do we have to have today? L- literally, can I draw for a little? <laughs> like- no, totally. We, we, Micah and I watched these. Uh, we watched this really great YouTube channel called Pal- Palo from Tokyo. I think it's oh, called. I'm going to watch it. And he's just this. It's really a great channel. And it's this guy. He, he does a bunch of different stuff where he lives in Japan and he speaks the language fluently and all that. But one of the series he does is the li- a day in the life. And he follows. It's awesome series. People, I recommend it. It's like a day in the life of an, a Japanese auto mechanic. Oh, cool. a day in the life of a Japanese ramen chef, That's a day a in the idea. life of a Japanese office worker. And they, they follow them from the beginning of the day to the end of the day and see how they live and how they work. And one of the th- it's awesome. And one of the things I always notice is they have these traditions in Japanese business where like they get together in the morning. They all do these like calisthenic exercises. This is a thing like a cross companies wow they have these like there's all these words and names for all these different meetings they have and the and it's so inefficient and it makes you it really no offense it's a clear why america is such an economic engine i was like everyone would be fired at this business if they were if they tried to do this shit in the united states where they're like doing calisthenics and taking their i'm like we don't do that here we'll wheel you out with your diabetes medicine attached in an iv (laughs) all right you're going to that so you think it's still like that or is it changing you know there's a shift to like sensitivity for an office worker's health and their eyes and maybe brain, I, I brain think, breaks and all that. I think my hope is maybe, but my hope is that in, in the, in the now what we've realized is how lucky office workers are, how fortunate we white collar in quotes workers are. And that the people that really get the shaft and got the shaft for all the blue collar workers who didn't get any breaks, had to work through all of this danger during COVID. If anything, we should be appreciating them. Who cares about office workers? Good point. Good you know, point. Dude. Who cares about us? Back to, <laughs> Back to the game, though, I wanted to we haven't really dove in or dove into the gameplay and the core gameplay. I'm really curious about this because so you played Metal Gear Solid 3, the original version, right? You didn't play subsistence. Yeah. So you you didn't have the 3D camera. So have the 3D camera. I can't even I would have killed myself if I had to play this game without a 3D camera. It's unthinkable. (laughs) I played the 3D camera version of it, but I'm curious just what you thought about the gameplay. There's quite a bit to get into because there's this array of weaponry, of course. And then there are a bunch of melee options that are introduced in this game apart from just sticking people up and stuff you have the the close quarters combat the cqc and i do think it's very campy and very fun how how important the cqc is like how they're the masters of the cqc and it's this thing this very important thing that they they know and teach each other and all of this but i felt that the the gunplay remained stilted using first person to look while shooting with the square button this is very in in 2004 this is a very stubborn decision and I understand that as I, as as I've read, Kojima wanted all the Metal Gear games to feel the same. The first three, I guess, but that's stupid. Metal Gear Solid Three has no business not having a 3D camera in 2004, and the fact that people had to go out and buy it again 
to get the 3D camera is bonkers. I can't I can't believe that. And so I feel like part of the reason why I'm unable to play the game, maybe the right way in quotes and stealthy way is because I just can't control the game. It just doesn't it doesn't compute for me. I have to think about it too much. And it's not about thinking about the game. It's about thinking about what I'm doing on the controller. That's that's a sign of a that's that's not a good sign where you're like, I don't because we've learned all of these things as time has gone on about the way games should feel. There is a standard control scheme that is really broken apart pretty rarely. We shoot with the triggers. We move with the camera. We move the sticks rather. So there's a lot to be said there. But one of the things that I think was cool that I undersold the first time I played that ties into gameplay that I think was actually kind of neat was the camo system. I, I did dig this system more i think they stilted it a little too much like i i really liked using this the the scientist uniform to go in and no one notices you but the scientists notice you're not one of them but if you're dressed as an officer then none of the scientists notice that you're not right but the officers notice you're not right that kind of stuff's really neat and adds a lot of dynamic gameplay but i'm curious what you thought about just the act of playing gunplay stealth all that yeah i mean this is again kyle where i'm probably i'm sure i'm aided by my growing but still limited experience with not modern games, but more modern games. Like if I had, if I played all the PS4 and PS5 games you played, for instance, and just had that constant churning of the newest titles and the newest mechanics and the newest gaming experiences, I'm sure I wouldn't have been as comfortable. But for me, I got pretty comfortable with it pretty quick. I knew the stories of like the lack of the 3D camera and how they had to do the subsistence version later on to sort of aid that but it didn't really bother me but one thing that resonates with me that you just said is that a game should probably for me i i go through the throes of like things feeling a little uncomfortable at first because i don't play as many games right but there should be a certain time period that elapses you know an hour or two in three a day in whatever it is where you should then be comfortable with the controls and i have to say i kept sort of fumbling with the controls a little bit throughout my experience with this game more so than, and the camera, more so than with most games that I play for the show. So I could tell that there was a little bit of a issue there, even with somebody with limited experience like me. And then for certain things like the camo index, I really enjoyed it. You know why? I think it's not only is it a great idea, I enjoyed it back then too. It's another thing to do, right? Not just in a busy work capacity, but I like when a, when a, a game is multi-leveled and multifaceted like that. It's quick. It's a quick thing to employ. You could switch it around and it actually works, which is fun. It's very satisfying to see it in real time actually work when your camo index is a higher percentage rather than when you're moving around rustling the bushes and all that crap. So I like that. And I do like that. That's a thing that's kind of undersung about this game too. Like I do like the disguise mechanic too. That's something that the game has that you very, you know, you hear rarely mentioned. And that's a fun component that I think they even could have taken further. And, you know, with thing, but with things like the CQC, I found myself not using it, I think, realizing now maybe because I was a little daunted by the controls for it. You know, not only do you have to have no weapon employed, which I guess isn't really a big deal, or just a knife employed, but, you know, you have to do a combination with the analog stick and the control. It's kind of, it's kind of exacting, and I couldn't be bothered. And maybe that did speak to my discomfort with the controls at a certain level. Like I had to dial it back in order to stay comfortable in order for to have fun. And that would have been a bridge too far for me, for me personally, where it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't bother a more avid gamer, I guess. So that's, you know, for well, me. That my, 
I, I would agree with the CQC thing in the sense that those convex sticks on PS2 and PS3 where they start employing, and even on PS1, where they start employing L3 and R3 functionality, it just doesn't feel right. And you 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 need to use those func- those click sticks to do certain tricks. So I actually don't think I ever held anyone up in this game, which is weird because I used to hold people up in MGS2 all the time. Oh, but what so I did fun. do is I was slitting people's throats left and right. That's what I was doing. In fact, when the sorrow during that thing, like everyone's necks were like cut, which was actually really cool. It shows you how you killed them too. That's but- so cool. But did you notice, Dig, and this is just one of those things we were talking about earlier where you can really kind of brute force your way through the game, for better or for worse, Yeah, is if if soldiers are a far away, which you get a cadence for this, if they're far enough away from each other, you can like bum rush them. And before they can even do anything, you just see QC and get them in the thing, you slit their throat. And yes. no matter what, like, as long as they don't hit their radio or something, like, you could actually just go from one to the next to the next. I think I did it, like, to, in, a, in this, like, forest area to, like, seven different characters <laughs> without any of them knowing. I know the area you're talking about. And, uh... <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to ask you about the setting too. It's Soviet. It's the Soviets. It's Soviet space, it's like near Pakistan, I think. But it's this kind of weird Asian jungle, and it's cool. But one of the things that I think this game kind of suffers from aesthetically, and I'm curious if you share this, is first of all, it's really cool to look at MGS2 and MGS3. I'm I'm always really amazed at looking at games, especially in the same series, running on the same hardware and how they learn that hardware. A great example, as we bring up often, is Uncharted one to uncharted three on ps3 it's like amazing I mean, this is the same engine. it's not the same engine it's a modified engine but it's the same console same hardware same idea so they definitely really up the game like mgs4 looks a lot better than mgs uh mgs3 looks a lot better than mgs2 but this console i think is not ps2 is not where it needs to be yet to really do outdoors space as well and i think a lot of green, gray, brown, it, it suffers when, the, when a console can't render texture well. And so even though it looks better in the main, I actually don't think it looks as good in some sense as MGS2 because MGS2 had more color, more focus. And MGS3, I think, let, lets itself get saturated. And in, in, again, one of the reasons why this would be exciting to see is because forests look amazing now in games like trees. Ray tracing and and God rays and and cloud and all of the all the different things you can do to make things look right and they and they do they do go a long way into trying to do that in MGS two I give them a lot of credit a lot of wildlife birds yeah which you can catch alive apparently it's ambitious. I do any of that it yeah. is but it's too ambitious it's actually a, it's kind of got the Mario sixty four thing I know people are like are crazy think I'm crazy when I say this but Mario sixty four is novel but I don't think it's great. Because right. it, it didn't quite, it doesn't do everything that I think a Mario Sunshine or a Mario Galaxy does. Like these games that are kind of the same, but but better. And I think I think there's more to be said about Metal Gear. Like, I mean, I'm, I played a little bit of Metal Gear Solid 4 back in the day. I'm actually quite interested to go play it now. Because as I recall, the game does start to feel right. And when you can get that down, when they yeah. finally accept that this is the way a third-person shooter feels. I think we, you can go a long way towards playing the game in an approved way but i just wanted to throw out that I, I i think the game looks beautiful but i think it's it's too monotonous and i think outdoor these sprawling outdoor settings i think was a mistake what what do you make of that contention you know it's interesting it's a really interesting part of the conversation because i wonder if it was just a matter of i read some stuff about kojima really wanting to tackle this sort of environment earlier and maybe it was just a matter of like he was tired of waiting and it was like 
you know, maybe it was just a matter of throwing their hands up and saying, I guess it's good enough to do what we want to do now. Um, but it's very challenging. You know, you think of like this time period for video games, even four years into the PlayStation 2's life, you know, the nature of creating like randomized organic terrain and trees and the nature of showing translucent light through leaves, right? And how that's got to... There's an uncanny valley even involved with something like that because we know how it's really supposed to look and how much can we suspend our disbelief. The nature of the way natural light plays on tree bark or on the ground, the way the light show, shines through the trees to the, you know, on the canopy, but also shines through the trees and hits the, the forest floor. Like that, and the movement, you know, natural movement, swaying of leaves and, and grass and branches and all that kind of stuff and how that plays with the physics of the character interacting with those things. It's tricky shit, man. Uh, it sounds like it's in theory, it would be easier to fake that sort of thing, but I think it's just the opposite. It's much easier to build a warehouse or some sort of industrial man-made structure and model that and light that and texture that, you know? So it's interesting for me with the graphics in this game. I, I, it's a period of time where you could see like, you could see them making inroads into what it will become, you know, graphics wise, which is interesting. Like there's a real still primitive 3d aspect to this, but it's starting to get cleaner. You know, the modeling is starting to get tighter, a little more detail. The lighting is a little more defined. The texture mapping is a little better. That sort of thing. There's more of a variety and, you know, along with that, Kyle, something that strikes me about this game, too, the characters are starting to get more emotive and fine-tuned, too. If you come out of, like, earlier PS2 and especially PS original PlayStation, like, the expression, the mocap is starting to add actual life, you know, in, into the acting. The acting is starting to creep in. It's starting to feel a little more natural. We're still in that somewhat, like, uncanny valley territory, but we could see it's getting better. We're heading into a new age. It's a very specific period, I think. And maybe this speaks to me like basically finishing this game back in 2007, a little later, and basically shutting it off and not playing another PlayStation game for, for a matter of years. But it seems like a very defined period for me where it was like when I tuned out of this game, to me tuning back into PlayStation specifically, it was a sea change. You know, it was like, whoa, like it was eye-opening how far it had come. And maybe that's one, you know, maybe that's one of the fond remembrances of me for this game. It was a very clear line of delineation between what games would be then and what they would become when I, you know, finally tuned back in, you know, and I was paying attention on the periphery, but I wasn't really, you know, I'd watch YouTube and stuff like that, but I wasn't really playing the games. So when I got back into experience, the games from this, but I, but you know, also I have to say from a modern perspective, we've tackled some amazing games on and, and relatively modern games on the show. And a lot newer games than this, it's fair to say. But it wasn't, this game wasn't far enough back to really take me out of the experience or feel like, I, I think you made a great point about Super Mario 64. That's a great example because when that game came out and the N64 was brand new and there was this sort of industry-wide push for CG slash 3D graphics and 16-bit 2D was considered old school and primitive when we turned on Super Mario 64, it was a fun game. But even then, in 1996, 7, whatever it was, we knew it looked primitive. You know what I mean? We knew it was like, okay, this is the capability of 3D graphics right now. We knew that from the arcade too. 
you know, there was stuff going on in the arcade too, to Tekken and all that kind of stuff. It was like, all right, we accepted that was the level of where 3D capabilities were, but it wasn't like, oh shit, this looks like a cartoon. Like we weren't like that. Like, you know what I mean? We were like, this looks no, like- No, definitely not. This is and blocky, you know? Definitely. And, and they made, and it's a, it's a vital game to the evolution of, of the medium. But I, I totally agree. I think it's okay to embrace that things get better and better if you just iterate on them. It's why the first in a series is rarely the best. No one cares. I mean, I don't want to say no one. No one cares, though, about Assassin's Creed 1, Uncharted 1. Right. Like, oh, these aren't, no, very few people ever point to those and be like, those are, the, those are the jams. People love Assassin's Creed 2. They love Uncharted 2. They love The Empire Strikes Back. They love things like that that iterate on themselves. And I think you can sometimes go a little too far. And I think they might have done that here. I also think that the limitations of PS2 just not allowing open, more open areas, it just hurts the game as well because like this would be much cooler if this was one massive forest area that you have to find your way through but it's like now you're in the north now you're in the east now you're in the yeah. west well you know and I'm like, mm, i understand that but i just think they bit off more than they, than they can chew conceptually because i just don't think the ps2 was really quite ready and I, as i understand the M metal gear solid 4 has massive environments as i recall and, and that is because the ps3 is capable of doing that that would be fun to jump into that one that would be, I mean, it's next, obviously, it's the next in line for us, too. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get there in, makes you know, sense. in, in the coming months. Sure. sure. We have to find, you know, not finally, there's other things to talk about. I want to talk about this ending sequence you had brought up earlier, mm. this this long one. Rob oh, Kavazny wrote in and said, Dear Naked Moriarty and Big Boss Moriarty, I was a tad late to MGS3. I had always heard good things, but it was not until the week before the release of MGS4 that I decided to give it a go. I was on pace to beat it just in time to pick up Guns of the Patriots the next morning, or so I thought. To my surprise, the game just kept going and going and going. I must have started the fight with the Shagahot at 2.30 a.m. I don't even recall what time I actually finished. I just remember feeling so mad at the game because I feel like it ha I had a deadline. What do you both think about the lengthy final act, especially you, Colin, because I think this was your first time? I didn't mind the ending stretching on and on with cutscenes. I just didn't understand why we had to keep fighting. Like, I hate chase missions. I hate... I hate them. And... These on rails, you don't really know exactly what you're doing. Like there are really interesting videos out there. I think Uncharted 4 might even be one of them where there's a chase mission where you don't even have to do anything. Like if you just just don't even play and nothing will nothing will go wrong. It just seems like it's this these on rail sections, I just think are, are problematic. I, I don't quite understand why people put them in games, but we're talking about a game that's 17 years old, so it's a little different. Still, though, I. I, I enjoyed this this mystical story as it were about the origins of this super weapon and i thought that it hung on for a while at the end but i think the story was pretty essential i think that the game actually really tied itself up nicely at the end and kind of made clearly clear in terms of the complete abuse that this person had went under uh, you know by under the, just the the the, the philosopher's legacy and, and all of that so but what did you make of the ending you had said that it, it, you felt like it went on a little long. I think that's a common sentiment. I don't. I think that it even gets worse in later Metal Gear games. But <laughs> can't wait. Uh, what What do you make of that ending? There's that a lot to say about this. Colin and I talk a lot on the show. You guys may have heard us talk about our when he was little and I was younger. We used to do these really protracted action figure battles, mostly with GI Joe. And we would do this thing where it was like Colin and I would choose our characters, and then we would kind of face off against each other and. We had this very specific rule of I shot you first and then slowly our favorite G.I. Joes and then the secondary choices and everything would fall away. And then 
Colin would do this thing where he would just take like a giant stuffed animal, like a giant Leonardo Ninja Turtle stuffed animal, and be like, you forgot about this guy, you know, or the Mickey Mouse doll, like, right. and the, you know, it would just be like one boss fight to the next boss fight. And that's what this reminded me of. <laughs> one thing that was kind of cool, and I actually find this really exciting in video games sometimes, where it's like you have, we did, you know, three quarters of this game. It was relatively open, relatively linear, but you could go, you're free to go back and forth. You have full autonomy and all of a sudden it snaps to on rails. I like the boldness of that. It's exciting. Like when all of a sudden your AI Eva companion drives the motorcycle, you're in the sidecar. Now you can't move around. You, you could, you, you could pull up your menus and change your weapons and stuff, but you're saddled there and you're running from the Shagahad. You're running from this super nuclear tank or whatever. I like that in theory at first. It's fun. It's like, oh, the game just became something else. That's pretty sick. Like, I, I just respond to that. I just respond to the boldness of, ha you know, putting that choice into a video game. I think, it's, I think it's fun. I think it's exciting. And, but that sort of motorcycle chase from the Shagohad, I like the way it slowly grew in intensity. Like, first, you're, you're, you're running from Volgan and the Shagohad. He's chasing you. You also have to turn around and face enemy soldiers. Eva's warning you, like, Snake, turn around. There's enemies. Then all of a sudden, Ocelot gets on a motorcycle. He becomes part of the chase, right? That intensifies. Then it's the next stage of the Shagahad ba battle where Eva's like, I have the detonation. I have the C3 set up on the bridge. we got to lure the Shagahad there, right? You kind of break up the Shagahad, it becomes another thing. Then the Shagahad goes down to the ravine. It becomes a Vulcan comes out. It's another thing. Now he's driving it, standing on top with his electrical Emperor Palpatine powers, and he's tied to the cables and he's actually steering this thing. So that's three boss fights in itself, right? Somewhere in the in between there, you're running from a, a, a battalion. Maybe it's the Ocelot unit of enemy motorcycles, not just Ocelot. Ocelot gives up chase. He loses his revolver in the ravine. Then that whole thing ends. They go to fly. They go to fly away. Now Ocelot's using one of those Akira-like sewer hovercraft alongside the wig plane. Now he's challenging Snake to a duel. Right? They crash. Then, um, then what happens? What happens after that? Oh, then of course they crash. The, the, you're in the field of flowers. Now you're fighting the boss. Right? That happens. Then it's a then it's an escort mission. Eva's injured. It's an escort mission. Motorcycle crashes. You have to guide her through the forest against all the enemy um, Stetsnet soldiers or whatever. It's like I have never seen anything like that in my entire life. And then in between, as you bookend each one, in between there's a little bit of exposition, a cutscene that's like unbelievable. Now I think again, I think it's anchored by Eva, Ocelot, Naked Snake, and the boss. Because I think they're very interesting characters. Volgan, not so much. You know, Volgan's just like, he's the physical presence, right? He's the heavy. He's there for it to be like, you he's know, also responsible. he's also responsible for all this. He's the one who shoots the nuclear weapon Dude. at the lab. I mean, that's. That's the one it. thing I'm like, holy shit, this all starts because this dude in 1964 shoots a nuclear like a Davy Crockett warhead at. Dude, how at, at a facility, what you think is yeah. like a sidebar in the beginning. Mm becomes the whole genesis of the story. And you have like the MacGuffin, like Sokolov is like the MacGuffin for the first, at least uh, two thirds to three quarters of the thing where it's like, you got to rescue this nuclear, this uh, rocket scientist. He's instrumental in the deal between the, you know, the United States 
in this alt history version between the United States and, and the Soviet Union, and you got to get them. Like, so you have that MacGuffin, but it's all down. Collins, right? It's all down to this thing that Vulcan does as like a like a sidebar. He's like, oh, by the way, I'm going to shoot this thing out because he's a fucking crazy person, you know? What right. I mean? And it all comes down to that. You know, you have this evil looking. He he reminds me of like an evil looking Duke from GI Joe, like. Mixed yeah. in with one part M. Bison from Street Fighter and then, of course, Emperor Palpatine because the electricity. Like, that's what yeah, that he's, character means to me. He's cool, but I agree. He's, he's a little boring. I, I think that it is peculiar. Like, he just because everyone's astonished when he does it, but it's like, holy shit. Yeah, even Asa's like, what the fuck? Yeah. It, it's first of all, that was like they had a Davy, these Davy Crockett nuclear warheads. These are just valuable things to have, but are it's those just a waste. Real and things? Yeah, they, the like U.S. was. Yeah, like they were experimenting with, I don't know. So I'll back up and say the first time I ever encountered the term Davy Crockett nuclear warhead was when I was doing research for Collins Last Stand back in the day. I did this really awesome video, one of my most popular ones about this moon base that the U.S. was planning to build in the 50s. Oh, shit. And uh, it was called Operation something or whatever. Never seen that. And they talk about how they were going to arm it with these small Davy Crockett style nuclear warheads that I guess were very portable. And so I was reading a little bit about it. And yeah, they were miniaturizing and miniaturizing and miniaturizing that fat man bomb structure like that that fat bomb with the the tail on the back of it yeah so sure. these smaller and smaller things so that they can get them in the shoulder rocket Dude, like tactical tactical back stuff then. yeah scary very yeah. scary so i don't know if they had like a bazooka type delivery system but that was the idea so i i to me i i look at that and i'm like that's so peculiar because really i don't want to say all of metal gear begins there but it, the intrigue of it begins because of that nuclear bomb, because that's what draws everyone's attention. And it, it reminds me a lot of the, uh, I'm sure you know that there was a, because you're in the, into this weird shit. It's um, <laughs> Project Vera, whatever it's called, but it's, it was like when there's that mysterious nuclear explosion in the late seventies or early eighties in the Indian ocean. And no one know still knows. This. Like it was like either the South Africans or the Israelis maybe working together and they oh, detonated shit. this bomb and, and the United States figured it out. But like, there's all this evidence of who did. It's really interesting stuff. Holy cow. I got to look into this. And they they figured it out because a satellite picked up this flash, like literally was designed to pick up nuclear explosions. So no one would cheat because we were supposed to not be testing them at this point. A U.S. Because it like, right. An American like CIA satellite or something. Okay. So they they've captured this image. Let me. Is it the. Dude, that's um, so intriguing. I love Israeli. Like yeah, I know you do. Nuclear explosion wiki. Uh, oh, yeah, the Vela incident. That's what it's called. The Vela incident, Vela. 1979. Look it up. Yeah, V-E-L-A. Wow, okay. So a very similar thing where it's that kind of evidence is picked up. But I also want to ask you about, and this is where I think the intrigue of MGS-3 really gets special is, we never really considered where this where this weapon came from. And at least I never did. And obviously it keeps evolving. Metal Gear Rex, Metal Gear Ray, blah, 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 blah. But it starts quaintly enough as just this tank that moves really quickly and and launches nuclear weapons and I think like uses its propulsion to like get speed on the ground and then shoot the rocket and then it shoots the rocket as its moment it has momentum so it's like an ICBM at, at a very early ICBM era rocketry era in the 60s so what do you make of that kind of the origin of this what we would end up knowing as metal gear which is this mech behemoth war machine starts quaintly enough in the Soviet Union as this weapon that is designed indeed to create. And this is, I think, what's so interesting about the old history, which we'll get into a little la later, a, a civil war in, in the Soviet Union. That's kind of what they're trying to do. The Soviets are trying to create one. 
So what do you make of our introduction to this super weapon? It's really cool. It's interesting on a lot of levels, right? Because Metal Gear, not just MGS, but Metal Gear in general, has this history of the Metal Gear at the center of the story and then introducing it very late in the tale. So keeps you on tinterhooks to like finally reveal this thing. But I love the idea of like this all-terrain tank. This version has like these built-in super drills. And it's got all this mobility thinking back to the 60s. It's like, whoa, this thing was pretty advanced for back then. Yeah, and awesome. of course, it's got nuclear you know, delivery capabilities. And the fact that they mentioned something interesting they mentioned in this is like Sokolov was developing one that was the bipedal, bipedal one that we would come to know later on. But they kind of eschewed that and went with this other one that was like basically a rolling tank, all terrain and very capable, but not the walking tank. Because that's what I was expecting to see. Then I remember they did mention that, like they kind of like scrapped Sokolov's plans and went with this other one. And Which is cool in and of itself. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's so cool. It's dude. It was amazing. I mean, they they spared. They didn't spare us this time from showing us the Metal Gear. Like we got full dose of like, what two hours worth of like what the Metal Gear was going to look like, and the fact it's kind of scary in the story that they're going to ma- they the the idea is to mass produce these things to make like fleets of them. It's not just like one super weapon. It's like, Jesus, how many of these things would you need? And also like talking about even back then like fuck missile missile silos like we're gonna do it in these things they're gonna be tiny you know very very portable and um i think what do they mention that the thing goes like 700 miles an hour or something like that yeah like, something absurd yeah like it's insane but they're running from it on yeah. like a motorcycle an old bmw motorcycle or something so super cool but i mean ama- amazing and like there's so many little reminders that this is retro like it gets so futuristic and crazy that you're like, oh, this is modern day. And then you're reminded by something like a piece of tech, the way the motorcycle looks like something. And then you're like, oh shit, like this was pretty, there's that constant reminder throughout the stories. Like this is pretty advanced for the sixties. This is like some proper sci-fi stuff, which is, which is fun and colorful, Definitely. you know? And you were brought up the motorcycle. We haven't really t- touched on Eva too much. The turncoat. Mm. What do you make of this character? She's she's interesting. Again, this would have this is a character that I think really could have benefited from language. No, n- the way that they all interact with each other could have I think really been leveraged by sometimes speaking Russian and sometimes speaking English. So that was a disappointment. But I I liked this character. It was cool also to see Snake. It, it actually reminds me. I was thinking about you because it reminds me of Bo- how you feel about Boba Fett and how we have this really stern disagreement about the special edition of Jedi and how Boba Fett like kind of like flirts a little bit with yes. one of the dancers. And I'm like, that's kind of cool. And you, you, like and you don't. Yeah. And you don't. And I feel like in this, it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious how you feel about like, we see snake get laid. Basically it's snake. We don't really see snake and we see snake get flirtatious and Merrill and all that. But this was a, I didn't actually expect this. And it also shows that even snake or this naked snake boss is able to be, used and cajoled and taken advantage of and is just another it's very personal which i think goes to to how illustrative is uh, illustrative it is of how you get to this point where this guy becomes like a villain in, in the later games yeah so what, what do you make about eva and his relationship with her and the and the kind of the, the sexual and relationship tension there i wanted to pick your brain on this character she really interests me you know, is she fan servicey? She's got the jumpsuit with the bra or the bikini top hanging out the entire time, and she kind of flies in the face of the other strong female character, which is the boss, who's like you said, like they're not using like a lot of like 
sex appeal with that character. She's just down and dirty. She turns out to be the hero of the story. Of course, like the whole Volgan incident, she's the one who claims responsibility and disgraces herself in order to protect Snake and the country. Like, then you have this Eva character. You know, she's the rendezvous. Like, she's the one who Snake, who Naked Snake is going to, like, rendezvous with initially. She's going to be his point of contact, boots on the ground, helper along this whole thing. She's actually a spy, double agent, trying to be like a triple agent. But she's got a lot going on. It's like, yeah, she's like, she's got the sex appeal going on. Feels a little fan servicey, but then you realize she's a spy, man. She's like employing her feminine wiles. She's doing the whole femme fatale thing because that's her job. You know, her job is to like, you know, distract and lure and all that kind of stuff. Like, so she, she makes a really interesting character. And then when you find out she's supposedly American, supposedly, a, you know, a former NSA code breaker who works for the KGB now and the GRU or GRU and KGB. I had to research this a little bit because I didn't know too much about it. Is it the GRU or GRU? What's the proper I've heard it. I've heard it say GRU, but I, I don't know. That makes yeah. sense to me. Yeah. Like what that that's a real thing. And they're sort of um, their whole thing dating back a hundred years where they have this very adversarial adversarial relationship with the KGB. And she's supposedly really involved in that. And you hear um, Volgan like making fun of her KGB ties and saying she's a KGB dog and, you know, kind of putting down the KGB and all that kind of stuff. Then be kind of like, we see that she's developing this very real relationship with snake. At first you think it's part of her spy act. And then you realize, no, there's some substance here. Like, these two characters are actually legitimately hitting it off. Maybe that point is reached when they're behind the waterfall finally and they sort of open up to each other. Even at that point, you're like, what? You know, I don't know. I don't know if I could really trust this character. And of course, the big reveal at the end is she's working for China the entire time. And she, as much as you like her, you find out she is the very reason that China gets nuclear technology. She is responsible for China becoming a nuclear power. It's like, right, dude, it's so, along with the like really cool shit, like the philosopher's legacy and stuff. It's like really, really good shit. Like I'm down for the story in this game. It's really satisfying from A to Z and it doesn't end hokey. It just gets better and better to the end. And I think her character is a big part of that. You know, I, I love what you brought up too about this triangulation that happens in their story after World War II in which the the philosopher's legacy, I guess, is their knowledge and their money, which they note is five times the cost of the war. And Dude, that's which is actually it's interesting because it's not it's a lot of money, but it's not that much money when you think about I think the war cost five trillion dollars for us by modern standards okay. in the United States. If you extrapolate that by everyone, it was a much more expensive. But nonetheless, they are very rich and in this triangulation between the three powers that one of them's kind of getting edged out. And this is their way to hold on, which is really cool. So I agree with you there. It's also nice because this comes from an era where it's not yet looked down upon to talk badly or to have China as your adversary in a, in a, in a, in a piece of fiction, which is just no, no bueno today because of their immense power in entertainment, which is really a shame. So I'm also interested in how they might deal with that in the remake of Konami even cares. Clearly, they didn't care at this time, but many entities do care about that. But it's cool because it brings everything back into balance and allows China to kind of edge in. And one of the things I was bringing up earlier, which I thought was interesting about 
the the Russian aspect of it is that basically Russia is undergoing a a kind of soft coup, wherein Khrushchev, the real man, is being over. Or they're t- attempting to overthrow a rogue element of the Russian military that's trying to exacerbate conflict, and so it's a really cool look at the Cold War through a different sort of lens, wherein the Cold Wars, the focus, I think, for both sides of the Cold War was really to keep the peace as best as they can. I think they both realize, both sides realized mutually assured destruction would be the end of everyone. Sure. And this shows that, I mean, it's not real, but it shows a, a potential for this more adversarial approach to the Cold War very early in the Cold War as well. The Cold War is barely 20 years old at this point. And, and goes on for much longer. That's a good point. Yeah. Alex O'Regan wrote in and said, Hi, guys. Colin, being a major history buff yourself, and Pagan can ask, answer too, of course. He says, How do you think the game handles its fictional revisionist history and portrayal of politics in that era? I remember being 10 on my first playthrough and the boss's ending speech in the flower field about how the flow of time and the political ramifications recycling itself is what spurred my interest in history. Is it my nostalgia glasses, or do you think that Kojima handles the politics from this era well? I think he handles it very well because... We're on the cusp of Vietnam at this point in the real timeline. Vietnam's already really begun in 64, mm. but but we're we're about to get involved in a major way. And as the French are kind of more and more not involved there at all. And so there's all these different power vacuums that I think Kojima examines really well. And the what ifs that pop up from these different flashpoints, which is what they really are especially when you load the flashpoints with just all of the weight of things that didn't actually happen in the real timeline, thus making them even more consequential. So I really dig the revisionist history. I'm curious, Dave, because you're such a fan too of, I, I think I, I, I suck up a lot of the oxygen just naturally because I'm so into history, but you really are as well. And I am. You enjoy, as we always talk about, the Philadelphia experiment type pseudo history stuff that I also enjoy as well. I think this 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 game rather really is oozing with that. So I'm curious what you make of the the history and and the examination of such a fascinating time like the 60s. I mean, any allegedly true story that people or entities or governments don't want to talk about is already poignant for me. Like that's already intriguing right there. It's like why don't you want to talk about it? <laughs> you know what truths exist behind this thing, like the Philadelphia experiment or other things. I love, you know, and I just love a good story. And there's something so interesting about creating a story that's anchored in actual history and then just kind of embellishing with your own sort of ideas. And I think this movie just does that so well. First of all, I never knew certain things like that I'm a little embarrassed to admit, but I'll cop to it. Like I never knew the Cuban Missile Crisis was due to the United States having weapons in Turkey pointed at the Soviet Union and that that was... The Soviet Union putting missiles in Cuba was a reaction. I never knew that. I never knew that. It's a fascinating time in history, though, because I always think back to that period of time. I was born like not 10 years later. And it's like, wow, the the world was never closer than on the brink of World War III than that, you know, arguably than that time, which is so fascinating to think of like how afraid people must have been that that was like a culpable you know, or, or I should say an actual probable outcome or a possible outcome that war could have occurred, like World War III could have occurred, nuclear war, Holocaust could have occurred. It's crazy to think about. And there's some really cool stuff that Kojima puts into this. Like, I like the fact of naming the Cobras 
after the different aspects of war, you know, the end, the fury, the sorrow, like different emotions tied to war. And I love something like the philosopher's legacy, which was like something kind of believable, if I'm understanding it correctly, like this joint pact between three world powers coming out of World War II that I guess allegedly they not only used to ultimately defeat the Nazis, but to ensure that that would never happen again, like a force like the Axis powers would never again threaten the world. Like it was like a war chest, as Colin said too, and a bunch of ideas and tech and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, and they, they go into how the Americans, which really happened, like we got all, the Nazi scientists built the moon, the moon program. Isn't that crazy? Program, you know, which really did happen. And, and you know, Braun and all, you know, Von Braun and those guys are Nazis. We just, so we just, these are people that were responsible for like the V1 rocket. You know, right. And stuff like that. So, which is a weapon. We just so, leveraged them for our ends. Right. And so I like how they, they get into that too. Right. Exactly. So they get in, that's part of the philosopher's legacy too, is that the, they go and they just take all the brain drain out of Germany. As which well. is so, that's a great point. That's a great aspect of it too. Very intriguing. And you know, I, I love it. I love the alt history when it's done like that. And then you see, we see it from the perspective of these tiny players from the Evas, from the naked snakes, from the Volgans, from the bosses, like, we see how the conflict and the events and the political intrigue and the protracted sort of adversarial, you know, adversarial relationships sort of play out to the individual, which is really just a great perspective to watch it from. So good. It was a lot, but it's a lot better. The story that this, that this game is built upon and sort of the skeleton that everything's draped over is better than I remember. I remember really loving the game. I remember really enjoying it. But I don't remember that being as strong. And um, I think it's a big part of the talk. You know, I think it's a big part of the conversation of why we're still talking about this game. You know, and a remake, dude. I'm excited. That's awesome. Yeah, if it's tr- I think it's true. I mean, these, uh, these are sources I certainly trust. Kabuto Kishi wrote in and said, Howdy, Big Boss Colin and Eva Dagan. Metal Gear Solid 3 <laughs> oh. is my favorite in the series from what I've played. I like seeing the origins of Big Boss and the events that set him to become what he was in the later Metal Gear Solid games. What political message do you feel this game is trying to tell? Mm. Colin, I know that you said you feel like Kojima, Kojima maybe leans conservative with his military guns, semi-anti-government themes. I think that's personally obvious, in my opinion. And what do you think of the character of Naked Snake and Big Boss compared to Solid Snake? We'll leave that. We already talked about that. But I am curious, Dave, what you think to Kabuto Kishi's inquiry here about what the specific political message is. Because I consider Kojima's message in this game to be fairly deep, which... And I feel like it's maybe a hopeless theme, which is it's actually a lot of what Trump used to talk about, which is, you know, whether you like him or not, I'm not trying to get into that. But <laughs> this kind of deep state mentality, like there are people, forces, apparatuses, organizations, groups of money, packs, whatever that just exist. And no matter what, who's elected and who comes in and who's appointed or whatever, these organizations just persist. And they and they exist and they feed themselves. And I think that that is what I think there's a staunch anti-war message at the center of Metal Gear. And I think that Metal Gear Solid 3 kind of shows the inevitability and the randomness. We were talking about flashpoints, right? We were talking about Volgan with the Davy Crockett nuclear warhead and how that's just a regular happenstance. And and all of those things can happen. It's very similar to how we got in quotes dragged into Vietnam with the Gulf of Tonkin event in quotes Right. Like the, there are 
or the USS Maine during the Spanish-American War and all these other things, these flashpoints, these things that happen and out of nowhere, things collapse. And they're often things that don't you're not able to predict. I think what Kojima is exploring in Metal Gear Solid 3, in my opinion, is the the depth in which the conspiracy goes, not in a fun way, but in a really somber way that there's no way you can break it. It's exactly what Eisenhower was saying in the 50s about the military industrial complex and how actually I think it's I wrote this down because I think it's boss that says it. She says um, the philosophers have become war itself. And I think that that's a really powerful quote. And she was she says they envision an earth or an earth itself that has no boundaries, a world without communism or capitalism. It's a very weird. That is weird. It's a really interesting thing. She says a lot of fascinating stuff. And by the way, I love we didn't really get into it, but I love that last fight with her in the flower field. I think it's awesome. I think so it's atmospheric. Fun. I am enamored in seeing that on PS5, right? Like how amazing that's going to look. That's going to be gorgeous. If they, but also the conversation they're happening about how the the CQC it doesn't it doesn't seem like they're quite trying to kill each other. I feel like there's there's analysis to be had just there as well where like it has to happen. But there's a violent undercurrent to everything and it's inexorable. I feel like that's what the game is saying. And people will manipulate it to their means and their ends no matter what, including sure. a character like Eva who technically triple crosses. I mean, that's that's not even a thing, right? I, I that's that's being a double agent. I mean, in a real way, must be extraordinarily scary. So imagine being a triple agent. That's insane. Where you're working on one group. Group X thinks you're working for Group Y. Group Y thinks you're working for Group Y. Group Y or, and Group Z knows you're working for Group Z. Group Y doesn't know you're working for Group Z. That's triple crossing. That's insane. And so, I don't know. I, I'm curious what you think about what he's trying to say here. That's why I think Eva. First of all, such a multifaceted character because even though she's sexy, sexy and she has the feminine wiles and she has the physical beauty, like only somebody of utmost intelligence could do that. You know what I mean? Could work on that many, be a spy on that many levels. So that's why I think she's such a poignant character. But yeah, you know, there's a lot going on in this message wise. I mean, you see, for me, it's like it speaks to generally the nature of conflict and war, right? Like, Everything that's unsavory that's involved in that, like the deception, the finger pointing, the inability to put aside like ancient hostilities, the distrust, the selfishness, you know, the self-preservation for your own people at the expense of everybody else, like all of that. But I think the message that spoke most to me, and I think the boss goes into this in, in one of her diatribes with Snake before they fight or after they, I guess it's before they fight. And I love this. And it's something that I think about sometimes is the notion of the ever shifting nature of enemies and allies and how w through time and through events, those things change and how it alters. I think about that a lot. Like think about, we've probably talked about this on the show before, but it's a great, I think a great reference point for us. Like think about the United States and Japan. We were mortal enemies. You know what I mean? Basically out for each other's destruction. Horrible things happen. The bombing of Pearl Harbor, dropping nukes on Japan. Like the most unthinkable shit went down between our two countries. Now we're best friends, right? That transpired in over time. And many other ex examples of nations on earth going through the throes of that. You Look at the United States and Germany. I mean, look at Germany. Like 
they're the they're the biggest thing happening. Sorry, English, I love you guys, but they're the biggest thing happening in Europe. You know what I mean? Like they are certainly the biggest economy. Yeah, that you know they're becoming the thing. You know, and and look at how that's evolved, and you know how important they are to the world, especially in terms of the of of economic considerations. So I love that. It's a very simple thing, a very common sense thing. I love the fact that it's a it's a very base thing. Like anybody could wrap their head around that. It's like yeah, the ever changing nature of sides and whose side am I on and whose side am I against and how that could change over the course of a very short period of time, all things considered. I love that message. Super cool. And I also think it is a cool message. And I also think that the United States was, we're, we're made fun of a lot for a lot of things, but I think we were incredibly wise in breaking the cycle of war by going into these various places, Japan and Germany in particular, and rebuilding them. Yes. That's not a thing that's ever happened in the past, unless they were going to take you. And then they'd gladly rebuild you. But we spent all this money on the Marshall Plan to make sure that Germany, allied countries obviously are going to benefit, but Germany and Eastern Europe and Japan, et cetera, are rebuilt so that people don't fall back into the to the the cycle of war. At least we 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 get away from that. And I think we've done a pretty nice job globally of obviously of avoiding global war since then. But it yeah, goes yeah. into, as you're saying, how fraught that is and how I think that the, the reference of the stool about how there's a third leg of that stool that, that it's always the Cold War is always looked at as the Soviets and the Americans. And how would have that have gone if China didn't, you know, by the 70s start openly well, the 60s really start using bombs and and testing them. And then before you know it, Nixon's over there opening them up before you know it. A few years after that, they're in the World Trade Organization. Things move quick. And now they're like an, an enemy of ours again, but it's like the enemy of the, my enemy is my friend. So then you have to keep all that up and it's a lot. It's complicated, man. Like, you know, what, and what are the factors that stimulate those changes? It's like, oh, we're friends. All of a sudden we need this thing or you're aligning yourself with the, with our enemy. Now we're your enemy, you know? So, right. and how it could kind of, it could kind of change on a dime, you know, seemingly, which is, um. It's not even like, it's not even a message. It's just like a real life reminder, I feel like, you know, of how that's, um, I don't know, just like maybe an inevitability, which is kind of like, but, you know, we're sharing that until we learn how to truly share the planet, I guess that's always going to be a thing, right? I guess so. I mean, there's always going to be, someone's always going to want something and it's a matter of, I think, how you navigate those waters. And sure. It's hard. I, I give a lot, I give people that deal in geopolitics a lot of credit because it's it's complicated dig is there anything we haven't talked about that you wanted to discuss i think we we did a good job sort of covering a lot of ground here you know i think i mean first of all i was really looking forward to this super fun yeah me too me too i hope you guys enjoyed it yeah i mean there's so much you could say about it but the one thing i'll say is that i enjoyed every aspect of the game we we talked about obvious faults and how how it could be improved but for me, it's definitely my favorite so far. I wanted you to know, Kyle, where you, you've played more of the games of the franchise. I've only played one, MGS 1 through 3. Hmm. Metal Gear Solid, the original, is a, is a very special game to me, but I really do love this game. Where do you rank this one now, having had this experience from, from start to front, or from front to back, I should say? Um, it's you it's funny it? you say that because Shadi Haddad wrote it and asked us what we were going to rank at least these MGS 1, 2, and, one, Yo, two and 3 so great minds <laughs> 4 and 5 I'm not going to 
consider yet because it's I'm not I've not seen nearly enough of four to have any idea. And five. I was kind of closed minded about when it came out. Mm. So as far as the first three, I would honestly say probably two, one, three would be my order. Two, one, three. Still, okay. Yeah. Interesting. But Interesting. it's been a while since I played the original Metal Gear as well. Metal Gear Solid, I should say. So who knows? But what is your order? I think I go three of the, you know, of just the original trilogy. I think I go three, one, two. But I may go back into one and and be like, oh, no, you know, this this game is like amazing. But I'm just so psyched coming off the heels of actually playing this game. You know, the other thing, Kyle, I have to say, like, there's something we talked about earlier in the conversation, something that Kojima does where he kind of like merges camp and sentimentality and sure. and real life story and seriousness. Like he does, he does this kind of thing where he blends everything he wants to see. It's kind of like from a creator standpoint, I guess you could you could kind of see it as a little self indulgent. But he's just really good at crafting something that works. I think on a lot of levels in a lot of ways. There's something really cool that this game does that sort of haunted me until I played it again, and then I was satisfied to see that those resonances remained intact. You know, there's a presentation here that I think starts with the opening of the game where you have the graphics and a very certain specific art direction, the animation tying in like actual news, old news footage spliced in all and edited together to create a real atmosphere of drama. And then it still a sense of reality too, even though clearly we're dealing with alternate history and just basing something in truth that also works on a campy fun level. You know, Volgan with the bullets in between his fingers and the nature of the Cobras and their supernatural powers and the sorrow. And then also kind of basing things in real life relationships that you care about. Snake and Eva. Snake and the boss. The origins of this character that we're going to get to know is the bad guy eventually. Like, the game's just the political intrigue. Like, there's the game's just working on so many levels. And I think this presentation is really a big bolster of that. You know what I mean? Like the overall presentation is something that makes for a really, really memorable experience. I think more so than almost any game we've played in the last couple of years, I would say definitely go play this, especially because it's a, you know, you're going to invest 20 hours tops and you're going to have this experience. Maybe you missed it. You know, like I missed so many games. I didn't miss this one. I'm very proud of myself, but you know, that's a big thing for me. I love the pat, you know, not only coming into a new age of, of graphical capability that we talked about with the animation and the art direction and the, and the um, CG and everything, but also just a really great presentation steeped in a camp that also works on a realistic level. Also very interesting to set something in 1964. I think there were only three James Bond movies up to 1964. I think there were six throughout the entire sixties. So you're referencing something that didn't exist. Now, the novels, the Ian Fleming novels date back to the early 50s, I think. But yeah, they didn't yeah. option James Bond for the screen until the early 60s. So, you know, you're referencing something that didn't exist very long, but I like the way it cleverly ties into something that could work for that time period. But more so, it speaks to us now because we know James Bond, the body of work over the decades, and it just smacks of James Bond from the opening note, you know, and the opening image, which is uh, just Certainly. fun. It is. I'm glad that we played it too. I'm glad that I finally checked it off my list and went back to it. It makes me intrigued to get to Metal Gear Solid 4, which we'll do, we'll do that. in the future. I know, I'm sure That'd we will. Fun. So, But we got we to get through some other games first that are on the list and some other things. But um, Dagan, as we always do, let's end every episode of Knockback with a dad joke. Okay. Twitter, 
your dad jokes out there. This one coming to us from W.M. Doyle. Maybe from Doylestown. I don't know. Could be. Doyle from Doylestown. Why not? So thank you for the dad joke. W.M. Doyle. Oh. A guy walks into a sperm bank. The doctor says, Would you get a load of this guy? Oh my God. <laughs> Gross. That's At least good. he said he didn't say, Would you get a load off this guy? Yeah. Because well, that would have been inappropriate. Yeah, that would have been a little bit inappropriate. You know what I mean? I we don't want any so. any cringy doctors in the sperm bank. <laughs> I'm sure. I can only imagine <laughs> the characters that are working in that sperm bank, I'll tell you. <laughs> All right, Dave. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate you. I had fun. And uh, I had fun, too. Thank you all out there for your love, kindness, and support of all things Knockback and Last Stand Media. Remember to go to patreon.com slash Media. early ad-free access to our shows, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to the show, submit topic ideas, vote on other people's topic ideas, et cetera, and so on. Those also, those perks go for Sacred Symbols, the a PlayStation podcast, and Finding Duke and Xbox podcast as well, our other programming. Otherwise, see you on iTunes, et cetera. Play it. And uh, yeah, there's the game. Yeah, go play, play it. it. Don't play that version, though. Play the, play the subsistence <laughs> Unless version. you're a glutton for punishment like me. <laughs> All right, my friends. Thank you. Goodbye. Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. All of Last Stand's theme music is by Ramon Narvaez. As you know, all of Last Stand Media's shows, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash laststandmedia. The following names are at the producer support level or higher on Patreon, and we're grateful for your kindness and generosity. Andrew Morgan, Stephen Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferreira, SLVFMA, Jorge Palomino, Daniel D'Amour, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Dave Cowell, Tom Quinn, Sword of Serious Gaming, Unofficial Controller Podcast, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parix, Henry Groth, Joshua Rids, Relentless Rex, Troy Miller, Meyer Katz, Jordan Mittman, J.A. Zhu, Tristan Palacio, Drew Mullen, Christian R., Jad Rita, Kurt M. Gillenberg, Patrick Skipper, Sweaty Mitt, Chris Kelly, Dustin Graff, Peyton Stone, Roberto, Josh Alan Rui, Tyler Watkins, Troilus True, Dan Root, Talisman, Christopher, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, Nuke Dukem, Jim Bob 56, William Holbert, Landon Pipkin, Dr. Stump, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H Trons, Ethan Davies, Jay Getter, Manuel Ochoa, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Silvinsky, Galja of Fortuna, Boots, Tyler Brown, Poot, Gavin Newland, Saul Balcazar, Zach Parsley, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Harden, Alex Bolton, Matt Martin, Kinnums, Joseph Baker, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Caswell, Anti Kinnanen, Chris, Will Hernandez, Chris. Galvin, Justin Gonzalez, Mason Cadillac, Ollie Fritz, Zach Allum, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Christopher, Colin Love, Daryl E. Naiman, Ryan R. Kittredge, Toby Ryland, Michael S., David Bostick, Stewie 108, Patrick Montgomery, Damon W., Tom Cargill, Richter 86, Steve Hodge, Holfeldian, Ian Bravo, Barrett Boswell, Christopher DeVaio, Chris Morton, Kevin Komaki, Johnny Waffles, Roto 24, Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason, Josh Gravelick, Jordan Town, Brian Chan, Organic Produce, Shane St. Pierre, Carlos Algorit, Richard Hebert III, Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Gavin, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R, Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Joey Rawlings, Dennis Usel, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, Jason Lusky, Malachi Wall, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Anton K, Brian W. Rath, Alan Trembley, Tyler Bello, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixie, James Kinslow III, Will Caldwell, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vasquez, Adam Kiniston, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jesper Jansen, Max Cannon, Phil Crone, Throw Seven, Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Petro. 
Astro Rose, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gondoliger, Gerald Pennington, Justin Wagaman, David Iacolucci, Paul Joyce, Edwin Castillo, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Shane Rayum, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Marius Garson Peterson, Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Purdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Mock Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.